Hey, this is Noah Aberback Katz, Rin on Star Trek Discovery, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that did make it home for Christmas. I'm your host, Craig, and we are here to talk about the most recent Marvel Disney Plus TV series, Hawkeye. Joining me on this is someone that saw me podcasting and decided, I can do that too. It's Aaron. We're podcast partners now. Whether either of us like it or not, it's just the way it is. There's no choice in the matter. Yeah, which one of us is phoning the other and, and which one of us is saying, don't ever phone me again? I guess I'm the Clint role in this scenario. So I'm phoning you a lot, am I? Yeah, that's it. You just won't stop phoning me. Yeah. Anyway, that's besides the point. Happy New Year. Other than the news podcast, it's the first regular format podcast of the new year. So Happy New Year. Happy New Year to yourself. I thought it was quite on point. I thought I managed to get a little intro that was connected to the TV show we were watching. Yeah, it was. It was was very well synergized i suppose yeah don't use business words yeah let's not although maybe there's some business speak in this show we'll maybe get to that i don't know no let's just delete it <laughs> but anyway hawkeye there was six episodes it was on disney plus before christmas it's very christmas themed we're outside the christmas period but we're going to be talking a bit about christmas it's a bit weird in that respect we kind of just got over it and now we're back in it but here we go so what did you think of hawkeye this six episode season or series we don't know if it'll be season two or not definitely my favorite of all the disney shows and i think i could put a reasonable case together even without a matt murdoch to say that it might even be the best of them i would agree i think it is the best of the ones we've had so far not that any of the other ones are bad i've liked them all to some degree or another although i think if one division had stuck its landing it would edge it for me but it didn't this was consistent throughout, I think. I don't think the quality ever dipped at any point. I don't think it ever felt rushed. I think they just told their story. And it's unique in the way that the Disney Plus shows have been so far in that it doesn't throw anything surprising in there, or not anything super surprising, or not anything you're not expecting. What it does is it just sets up what it's going to cover and then covers it and does it well. Whereas the others have kind of thrown you a couple of curveballs here and there or been focused on a mystery or whatever. But this one, it just plays it largely straight. The other ones, I think, have had that common theme of as soon as they have to try and fit it into the wider MCU, you've felt a jar in the plot and you you really felt the MCU hit you in the side of the head. Whereas this one, the wider MCU connections had already been set up, so they just flowed naturally into it. And therefore, the last episode didn't have any of those problems. So WandaVision had that massive problem for me. Even then, I'd probably agree that I don't think WandaVision committed to WandaVision and it started to stray outside of what you thought was his original promise at the start. But yeah, this doesn't have that. Hawkeye is, is what it is right from the start. It's already set up. It, it just, yeah, it flows. It flows very well. Yeah, it tells you in the first episode what it's going to do. And then in the last episode, it's still doing it. Yes. Which is great. I think 
some people have maybe said that it's a bit disappointing in that respect because it doesn't throw you any of those curveballs. But I'm a big fan of when something just tells you what it's going to cover and then covers it and does it in a really interesting and well put together way. And I think that's exactly what this does. And in terms of the superhero stuff, I do tend to lean more towards the whole street level side of it. I enjoy the street level characters more. It's not that I don't enjoy the larger scale stuff, like Avengers, for example, or the Eternals or whatever. All that stuff does appeal to me. But I do like someone with limited resources just dealing with stuff as well. I find that more interesting in a lot of ways. Depends what you're after in a film. I've constantly been on our podcast talking about how I want a more personal story yeah, because that is what's going to bring me in and the street level people are always going to have that because they don't have a big action scene to come up they don't have a large power you could create a martial arts flick and you don't need it but it, it lends itself so much easier when you don't have to fit in a thousand exploding spaceships just to have an emotional issue at the core that's quite pleased I'll come back on topic in a minute but things like your Spider-Man the latest film kept it personal whilst going to a higher level but i think that's actually something that's rare it's much harder to do when you have universe ending threats so orca had the advantage of coming down to this lower level and kept it personal but even with that advantage i would say it still managed to do what it was doing better and because of that yeah it was always going to be my favorite it could have been operating on that level and done it badly yeah that was always a possibility but it operated on that level and did it well, and that's why I really warmed to it. But I think we should stop dancing around the details and get into the spoilers. I will try and hit that clock tower bell, or whatever it was, and take us into spoilers. Do it. I did it. Okay, so we can talk about anything now. I think we should just start with Clint, since in theory he's the lead, although I don't think he's entirely the lead. I think it's as much Kate's show as it is his show. There's two main themes or two main story points for Clint in this show, or three really. One is he wants to get home for Christmas. That's his objective. He wants to get home to spend Christmas with his family. That is the one thing he wants to do more than anything else. There's also the whole concept of his past catching up with him, with the Ronan identity that he has to put behind him completely. So there's an element of reclaiming his humanity and adding into that is him being a suitable role model for Kate. So there's those, we'll say two and a half main threads that he follows. So let's start with a simple objective of wanting to get home for Christmas. What did you think of that as a setup? Did you feel invested in Clint losing days that he could spend with his family? Did you feel the tragedy of that important time that was being missed because he felt this responsibility to deal with this situation that he didn't cause but is connected to did you feel that urgency associated with the he might miss christmas problem from episode three i'm gonna say there was a scene in it that makes my answer most definitely yes and before that i don't know if i would have been able to really pick it up as the headliner that you've got it here and the, you know it's, it's like the, the big thing we talk about first i would have said it's got this connection to die hard in that sense you've set it up let's move on and in fact action and so on does actually have that 
real diehard feel to it. And I think it could have left it there. It was just something that we needed to know. And I probably wouldn't have missed it too much if it had have just been left there. I was needing something more to make it important. And that comes in in episode three, where he gets the phone call that he has to take was being deaf because he's phoning him. That's an incredible phone call. I love that scene. It did actually move me and potentially is one of the best scenes of the entire run. Without it, I'm not sure I'd be able to have a big conversation about this whole and I think they did a good job with his wife, actually. I really did enjoy that she was a fully fledged part of his team. She was almost the guy in the chair, the yeah. person in the chair, if you will. But it was more than that, and it was better than that, because it's really nice to see some of these extra parts to a character that you won't see anywhere else. And normally when you get the partner elsewhere, they're a problem. I'm trying to persuade you that it's important to save the world, and I can't do this. Well, you better, because I've got to do this, and you need to come back to the job. I would have hated that. It was so good to have her fully, not only respecting what he was doing, but able to actually support and counsel him, knowing everything about what was going on and getting involved as much as he could. So maybe not the day by day that you're describing this countdown going along. I don't know that I necessarily ticked off the days in the calendar in, in that brutal way, but when the phone call came in, when he was constantly talking to his wife and she was being so supportive whilst also having to run the family in the background, that's how it got me that it was important. And I would actually say that that's considerably better and more moving way of doing it. Yeah, and what you were saying about her being supportive is consistent with her other significant appearance. She's an end game, but I wouldn't consider that a significant appearance in of itself. In Age of Ultron, where she's introduced, she's the one that tells Clint, you've got to go off with the Avengers and keep them right. You've got to go off and do this. So again, she's supportive. And we get context as to why she's so supportive, why she understands Clint's need to do these certain things. The worst kept secret of she used to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Mm. Makes sense. That's how they met, you would imagine. She got out, he didn't. Maybe that was a decision when she fell pregnant. Okay, you can get out, you can be the one that takes care of the family and I'll continue being Hawkeye for S.H.I.E.L.D. I'll continue being this S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. That's probably what happened. It doesn't tell you. It's just me reaching, making headcanon up. The number on the watch, by the way, we'll get this out of the way, is attributed to Mockingbird, who was played by Adrian Palicki in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. All right. It's unknown if that's going to decanonize Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., if it is even canon in the first place anymore. Don't know. It doesn't need to be. With everything that's been going on in the films, you just say, oh, which timeline were you in? Oh, yeah, fair enough. They don't say in the show that she's Mockingbird. They only say that she was Agent 19. I can't remember if in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. they ever identified Bobby as Agent 19 or not. It doesn't really matter. I think she doesn't have to be Mockingbird and Bobby Morse can still exist, so they could still bring that back. To me, it doesn't really matter. I think the important thing is that she was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and that explains A, where she got all those skills from in terms of looking stuff up for him, and B, why she's so understanding of this call to action that he has. Uh, but on the Christmas countdown thing, I don't know that I've necessarily felt that he's only got three days left or what have you throughout the show but I did really feel the, the urgency of it and I do think the constant reminders helped with that because even in the second episode he's on the phone to his wife and she says 
how much longer is it going to be? And he's like, another day, I think. And at that point, it hadn't escalated too massively. He just thought he had to tie up a few loose ends and then it kept getting worse and worse. And then episode three, as you said, that great conversation he has with his son where he can't hear him, that was superb. And then after that, you had Kate referencing, just go home, this isn't your problem, things like that. So they did keep it in the forefront that Christmas was something that he wanted to spend with his family and it was rapidly looking like it wasn't going to happen. I think a stakes that worked brilliantly. And it's really great when you can have relatively low stakes like that feel so massive because it's important to him. And then therefore it became important to me that he achieved this because they set it up as being the world at threat from his perspective because that is his world. Well, let's get on to his other arc as such, the whole reclaiming humanity, putting the Ronin identity behind him thing. The introduction of the Ronin concept in Endgame was a great little setup for the show, actually, without possibly meaning to. And I like how it fed into everything here because the criminal underworld came to know and fear Ronin. He was this boogeyman, in a way, that would approach them and murder legions of their henchmen and things on some quest for justice or whatever his motivation was. His motivation was, it's not fair that these people are still alive when my family aren't. That's why he was taking these bad people down. But from the perspective of the criminal underworld, they don't really know why he was coming after them. But there was a fear there. And when it seemed that they resurfaced, there was definite motivation to make sure that they dealt with this threat as quickly as possible because their numbers could rapidly decline. Probably wanted revenge as well. I felt like that was a big part of it. Just admire, if nothing else, but with everybody else. It's you've managed to get rid of loads of our friends, so we're coming for you. I actually found that the Ronin part, when it originally appeared, didn't really get much of a play out. I kind of understood it, but it didn't really have much of an effect at the time. It was a bit of knowledge, and it was actually really nice to see it here again, as you say, getting fleshed out then, because now we got to feel more of what was going on. Because when you first see him, he kills what is presumably a big bad guy in the underworld. And then that says, come back and, and then heal up and, and, and move on. It's not quite that quick and dirty. But when it comes to the length of time given to it in the plot, that's pretty much what it is. We know that the guy's a bad guy and he, he's been judged by the Ronin. But now we actually get the Ronin really built into the whole plot. At every level too, because I was quite pleased to see it appear in front of Kate. Because... It can be very difficult to set up your plot. And I think one of the only problems I had, and I won't even call it a problem, but just to indicate what side of the coin it's on with exposition, was the watch. And we had to mention lots about, we're here for the watch. You must get the watch. And you just want the rest of the mafia to turn around and say, we know. We all agreed that back in the base ages ago. <laughs> but the audience needed explained about the watch. But the rest of it was so well-placed. And so I'd, I want to take back this problem. I don't think it was. It was a small element. I'm not upset by it. But it stood out in my mind because all of the kit that Kate needs to, first of all, solve the problem in front of her, but then also to get into further trouble that then has to pull Hawkeye in, Clint in, was so well placed through an auction. And nobody had to explain the auction to us either. 
It was just your rich people that want funky Avengers stuff and funky superhero stuff and funky villain stuff. Oh, and a dinosaur, by the way. Sure. <laughs> it's just obvious why you would want that. And there and all is somebody's collected it. Big explosion. And Kate can go and pick up what she needs. Why does she need to hide her appearance? Well, it's obvious. Why does she need a weapon? Well, it's obvious. I'm really pleased with episode one that it managed to do all of that without having to have any big exposition scenes apart from that tiny little thing. So Ronin is so well used in this that it starts out in such a purposeful way, but then also goes on, of course, to be more than just a a small connection between Kate and Clint at the start, but very defining in terms of his development. Very pleased with the whole Ronin side of things. Yeah, and as you alluded to, it adds texture to that Ronin story because in Endgame, it's really only two things. The first is when Natasha asks, I think it's Rhodey, have you found Clint? And he says something like, just bodies. So he's always there a bit too late and finds the aftermath of what he's done until Natasha finally catches up with him. And then there's Natasha approaching him and snapping him out of his murderous rampage. And then that's, according to Avengers Endgame, that's the story over. Clint is Hawkeye again. He's not Ronan anymore. In fact, they don't even mention Ronan in Endgame at all. That name doesn't come up. But here it's established as this much bigger thing. What Clint did has ripples that spread through the criminal underworld. So you get the mob bosses telling their friend mob bosses, this guy is offing us one by one you might want to prepare for this and it keeps going from there and he becomes this like i said a boogeyman i think that's the best way to describe how they see him because there is that fear and that desire for revenge when the suit is shown to be out in the open again and i love the approach of kate has no idea what it represents and ends up getting caught up in this problem because she has no idea that the suit has so much meaning it was really clever as you say the way that they set that all up and organically brought them together like that. I quite like the subtle connection into Fisk as well, which took me a while to think about. I was trying to think if I thought my father being killed by the Ronin was a coincidence too far. But when I was thinking about it, specifically when we knew Fisk was in, I decided I did like it because the idea that the Ronin is this force that's against the underworld will be very threatening for your villains. But Fisk is supposed to be one of the end-of-level bad guys. And he's not going to have Thanos-style universe-altering powers, but he still has to be threatening. So how can he be threatening? Well, he can take this piece on the chessboard that is the Ronin, that is technically a threat to him, and manipulate the Ronin to do his bidding. I can't get rid of this guy without causing myself political trouble, but I know a Ronin that can. And when I sort of put all that into my mind, I thought, yeah, I don't need to see this as a coincidence. I can actually see it as Fisk being very clever. So taking that thought in mind, the Ronin gets even more value and, as you say, gets even greater context for the world that all of these characters are now fighting in. And, and I think it actually helps to give Fisk a bit of grounding that's difficult to get in a distant villain. I didn't quite want to see so much of Fisk at the end acting by himself. 
but it probably was what it needed to do. And when he was there, the fact that he was physical as well as mental in terms of his skill set was pretty good. But for me, potentially, actually, just having him manipulating pieces on a chessboard did actually add to his threat value. And, and the Ronin is part of that. So the Ronin is weaved in everywhere. Yeah, because you had Fisk tasking Kazi with pointing Ronin and Clint in the direction of Maya's father. Mm. Yeah, he's pulling strings at a distance. And I do have issues with Fisk being so active in the final episode, which we'll definitely get to. But yeah, the suggestion that this guy, the big guy, as they kept referring to him early on, is pulling these strings and we don't know who he is. And we deliberately don't know who he is because it makes sense within the story for him to not be a hands-on manager. Mm. He's the leader of a criminal empire. Presumably the tracksuit mafia aren't his only gang that he runs. So yeah, he's not going to get involved in quote-unquote the small stuff in that way, but we'll get to Fisk later on. But the Ronin thing, it represents something more interesting from a character point of view, or at least it's more interesting to me, that whole idea of Clint went off the rails for five years. He lost his family and he just went straight into the darkest hole he could climb into, psychologically speaking. He just became this cold-blooded murderer for five years. And I guess he wanted to put that behind him afterwards. You don't really get any commentary on how difficult that was for him to just divorce himself from that side of it. But the idea of this mistake, this big part of his life that he wants to forget coming back to haunt him and him having to clean up the mess that's left in its wake, I found that really interesting because it does contribute a lot to his mental state of not feeling like a role model, not feeling like a good person even, and being ill at ease with the celebrity that he has by just being involved in the Avengers. I think it all stems from the fact that he doesn't feel he deserves any of those accolades because of what he did. Yeah, they do build on that. They also point out that he's, what was the line he gets himself? The whole reason I don't want to move center stage with a big costume is because my whole job was based around not being found out (laughs) of the guy firing the, the arrows. So there's quite a lot in this that the character Hawkeye has been needing for a long time. And there's not really been an avenue for them to do any of it in the films. And it's good to hear a reason why they were doing it on purpose. And But then when you hear it out loud, you think, oh yeah, that's still a shame though for this character. You've got all of these superheroes who can't help but upstage everybody when they turn up. Hello, I'm the Hulk and I'm really angry. Smash the entire place. This person is always going to upstage you no matter what they're doing so they came into the avengers because they were part of that in the original comic book but then when you're trying to create a film for them yeah how do we give hawkeye center stage kind of can't can we tell jeremy remember that no we can't really tell him that let's just hope nobody notices it's been this awkward thing that's dogged us throughout the entire mcu should we not have done more with black widow and, and hawkeye we're probably sure it's too late now and now it really comes center stage and he gets to show us All the stuff that we knew was there, but really hadn't had a chance to see enough of at all. And yeah, you're right, Ronin is one of them. I think they do loads with this, and it's actually what makes the whole show the best show. Every part of his development, every part of his history, every part of what he wants to be, hopes to be, thought he was, thought he should be, is brought into his choices. So you're right with picking out Ronan, but actually, yeah, it's, it's all part of him, isn't it? Everything suddenly goes under the microscope here, and you really get to see who Clint Barton is. Yeah, Ronan is just the catalyst for that exploration, because that's the problem he's dealing with right now. That's what gets him back into action again, whereas otherwise he would have just gone to see a musical with his family and then went home. 
devastatingly awful musical by the way that (laughs) we need to talk about but i really don't want to talk about it i hate musicals and that was why that was a really good musical because (laughs) even i only saw a part of it i really hated it so that must be a contestant for a really good musical we could actually have do you hate all musicals there's about three musicals that i like a couple of stage and a tv one but some of them are known for being purposely different to other musicals and i think that's the only reason i can get on board with them but for the most part the format of a musical drives me up the wall that's interesting because you're the one often campaigning for dance numbers to be in things more dance numbers you always say Absolutely. Dance numbers work for me. Musicals are <laughs> just painful. If you want to understand my perspective, let me just give you a short on this. I remember watching Miss Saigon, and at one point there's a lullaby being sung by a woman to a soldier who's gone through a hideous mental trauma. And this lullaby gets belted out as part of a really powerful song. And I'm sitting there in the audience thinking, that poor bugger is trying to get to sleep and recover and you are yelling in his face (laughs) because the music demands it be a musical. The plot demands it be a quiet lullaby, but the music really takes over because it has to because it's a musical and that really activates the plot force for me in such a way as previously only things like Flash has been discussed on this podcast. So there you go. That aside, I think that was a good plot force musical that we saw here absolutely terrible and i agree with the guy who wrote in the toilets thanos was right <laughs> totally agreed with him there wow sweeping what are the musicals you like out of interest we may as well cover this now you want to cover this now no you are going off topic right the musicals that i like phantom of the opera another one that was on we saw it when we went to new york called curtains it was written for david hyde pierce and because it was written specifically for him it really worked well okay potentially if you took him out of it you wouldn't be able to see it but if he ever does curtains i advise people to go and see that and then on the tally there's one i'm not going to remember it well enough but there is a tv musical i wanted to say guys and dolls but i think that's going to be wrong when it comes to musicals i do like musicals although i don't like all of them it's like with anything else i like action movies but i don't like all of them i like superhero movies but i don't like all of them etc i'm not against the whole concept of a musical i do quite like a lot of them the ones i enjoy tend to be more narratively driven or maybe with the music being a part of the actual plot itself in some way i've named two of them and that's it no no there are no i've seen a lot i've had to i've sat through them there aren't any well there's a film called begin again for example by john carney where the music is part of the story in fact all of john carney's movies all three of them are framed around characters that make music and that's why the songs are in the films, because the characters make music and it's a huge part of the story. I also like the Disney movies, the Disney animated films. I would consider them to be musicals. So that's interesting. So you're actually widening the sphere that I was thinking of here. For some reason, we're stuck at the old stage ones or the ones that they've blatantly set up a stage on film. But I would probably separate them out. Because I went to see West Side Story before Christmas and didn't like it. Yeah. So I don't enjoy all of them. So yeah, I would consider Disney movies musicals, for example. The one that was on Netflix, that still is on Netflix, with Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Very, very good. That's another one where the music is part of the story. Right, hang on then. Talk to me about stage musicals, because this is what I think of as a real musical. A musical film, I totally get what you mean, but to me that's a different thing. Tell me a stage musical that is is this way, narratively driven. Oh, I don't know then. I have seen some stage musicals that I enjoyed. I liked Wicked. I've been to see Wicked. Well, I've not seen that, actually. 
Phantom of the Opera I've seen on stage as well. I quite enjoyed that. I can't think of many others. Oh, I did see Miss Saigon on stage when I was at school, but I didn't enjoy it that much. No, can't do. It's not, not enjoyable. Again, like some of them and not others. Right, this is far too long on musicals, by the way. I don't think musicals deserve any more time in the podcast. <laughs> They've already had more than they deserve, so we have to move on. Segway back to Rogers the Musical then, because it was in this. We had a snippet of one of the songs in the first episode, and then as a post credit scene for the sixth episode, we got the whole song, which was great. I think they made it really authentic. Like you said, you went down the, it's horrendous, so it's authentic yes side of it but it does look like something that would really exist on broadway oh it did they put a lot of effort into it in that way the one question i had about or one of the questions i had about the musical existing is is that not in poor taste the battle of new york and the other events since it's called rogers the musical you have to imagine it doesn't just detail the events of the avengers it's probably a few things but isn't that in really poor taste lots of people died during these events and you've turned it into a musical it'd be like doing 9-11 the musical i think it's one of those things that's a bit of a commentary on modern life. And I was okay with it for that reason alone. There might be some time in gap that people say time heals all wounds. Because this was supposed to be set, I think somebody told me, I saw online, it was supposed to be Christmas 2025. And I can't remember when the Battle of New York was supposed to be. 2012, the year it came out. So it's over a decade distance. Is that okay? I don't know. But I think it's more of a commentary because how horrifying have you been with some of the stuff that's coming up through your TV screens at the moment? We've seen pandemics been put specifically through the microscopes before, but we've actually had stuff on the TV now about the current pandemic. It's not even over. Yeah. And we're seeing pandemic stuff. For those who are part of the British audience, we hadn't completed Brexit. And there'd already been some docudramas and some normal just dramas on Brexit. How can you possibly end this? You don't know how it ends yet. It's still going in the real world. Brexit, the musical, was really in poor taste, wasn't it? But you can believe that people would totally do this because... We're that desperate to get more stuff put on telly as fast and as quick as possible. If we don't have to repeat something that somebody's dredged up from years ago, ah, they've forgotten Scooby-Doo by now, we'll do Scooby-Doo the musical, you know, they'll bring it back. Apparently it's going to be a Grange Hill film. Again, that's pretty much just for the British audience, but there's going to be a Grange Hill film now because somebody has gone back through the catalogs and thought, we've redone everything. What's left? Grange Hill, brilliant. <laughs> People love that. So I think Rogers the Musical comments perfectly on that. What can we do? We haven't got a musical for Christmas. Avengers, what else would we do? Brilliant, let's do that. Get on stage, actors, rubbish songs, piss everybody off. It either is very believable. I think you're right. It is in poor taste, and that's the reason why it wouldn't happen. But as a commentary on the way things are at the moment, yeah, it was too good, too on the money. I would challenge the Christmas 2025 thing. I think it's supposed to be set Christmas 2024. If anything. Podcast technically accurate, fair enough. I still get the whole thing about being a decade though. Yeah. The main reason I say that is because I think this is set roughly around the same time as the Spider-Man movie, because Yelena mentions the alteration they're making to the Statue of Liberty, which is a big plot point in it's not a big plot point. It's a part of right. Spider-Man No Way Home. And Spider-Man No Way Home takes place during and after Peter's senior year, which would be just after Far From Home, which was set just after Endgame. So there we go. And I could be wrong there, but they don't really signpost it in any way, and it doesn't really matter. But yes, there has been time that has passed since 
the events of the Avengers. And I can't believe people would try and capitalise that for entertainment value, but I just found it a little bit in poor taste. And so did Clint, clearly, because he was personally triggered by watching this thing. Because those were events he lived. Those were really difficult times for him. They weigh on him seeing Natasha prancing around on stage is really difficult for him because he so recently lost her. Things like that. You get that perspective of how could they make this crap from Clint because he's reacting to it in that way. Well, yeah, I don't think they would be able to make it because of, as you say, poor taste. But as I say, there's a piece that's on commentary of our world. It worked pretty well and Clint doesn't have to go and see it. No. I guess his kids wanted to. Well, yeah, it's one of those things that you do and then suddenly think this was a bad idea, but it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> but I found that quite hard-hitting, actually, when he was just watching this play out and it was supposed to be entertaining and he was horrified by it because he was just mm. thinking back to how these events threatened his life. And the touch of him turning the hearing aid off so he doesn't have to listen to yeah. it, I like that. That was a, quite kind of darkly funny in a way. Maybe not darkly funny, but it was, yeah, there was a darkness to it. Of darkness to his reaction. Actually, I just thought why well, it probably wouldn't be in bad taste, because of course I've misunderstood the title. It's Rogers the Musical. It's not Battle of New York the Musical. Yeah. Presumably the Battle of New York was one scene in a musical that was about Steve Rogers' life. So if he, someone said, you want to come and see a musical about one of your colleagues, you're like, yeah, fair enough. And you hadn't thought that one of the big musical numbers was, of course, going to be Battle of New York and Natasha. So I was thinking of it as an Avengers musical, but it's not. It's Captain America the musical. Yeah, you have to imagine the subsequent scenes are things like Age of Ultron and Civil War, where concerning stuff happened. Infinity War and Endgame, perhaps, will be in there too. Yeah, but altered and played by producers who want to make money and know how to play around with it. Anyway, I'm talking about musicals still. Get off this topic. <laughs> Disaster that is talking about musicals. It should be banned. We've covered it. We won't discuss it again. We've gotten that out of our system. We'll veto this if you ever mention it again. What, during this podcast or just in general? Ever, ever again. Ever yeah. again in life. Yeah. I don't know if I can promise that. I can possibly promise that it wouldn't come up for the rest of this podcast. But promising to never mention it again in life might be a bit too big an ask. But back to Clint and his PTSD and things. I think the musical is actually a great way of... Oh, you said it again, Vito. You promised. It leads into my next point. It's a great way of setting up that he is struggling with his own past, with the memories that are associated with it. And with the role that he has in the world, he has no interest in being a celebrity, but he's up there on stage, played by some other actor who's dancing around. And someone recognises him in the crowd as well. A little girl, I think it is, waves at him. And then someone asks him for a selfie in the toilet. And he's like, it's not really a good time, not the appropriate time. And then a restaurant says that his money is no good there. So there's all these things setting up the the fact that he has made an impact and people do appreciate him and he has a problem with that. And it's kind of a funny meta commentary on the whole idea that Hawkeye is in fandom characterised as quote unquote nobody's favourite Avenger. Whereas this entire show is actually kind of about how he is one person's favourite Avenger and that he's generally appreciated, particularly in New York who feel that they owe him a debt, I guess, or some people in New York feel that they owe him that. Yeah, I think it comes back to the just that problem that they had when they started this. He's potentially nobody's favourite Avenger because he doesn't get to take centre stage and he doesn't get to impress any of us in a film in the way that he clearly impressed upon Kate. 
when she saw him flying through the air as a normal human being. It's a shame, actually. Much as I loved the Avengers film, it is one of the reasons why I will never like that film as much as I've loved some of the other more personal stories that they've done. One of the biggest and most impressive moments I've heard from some of these films are things like when Captain America jumps out of an, an airplane or a helicopter into the sea and someone says, he's not going to parachute, has he? And somebody says, nope, no, he doesn't. They're just talking about the fact that this normal human can push the boundaries. And if you had that perspective on Clint, did that guy just jump off a building with no parachute or harness or anything? Yeah, he did. Yes, he can do that because he's got these arrows and he trusts them and that's his skill set. Suddenly from Kate's eyes, you see what you should have been seeing before. That's really impressive to just leap backwards off a building, shooting one of the bad guys, whilst then saving yourself with another arrow and timing it so perfectly that you swing into a window and land without doing hideous damage as the death counter in Die Hard always gave us, you know, a number of times he died here. And that's a time where somebody should have died. They swung through a window at the end of an arrow, should have broken his shoulders and his arms, and he should have smashed his body as he goes through the glass window and this, that, and the other. So if you think, yeah, a human being did that, this is really impressive. And you want to see some of that sort of stuff. But again, it just comes back to it. It's such a big shame that the character never got their center stage they were always in somebody else's shadow and unreasonably so nobody's favorite avenger but it should have been and here you get to see why one of the adjectives i would use to describe this entire series is charming and that might sound low quality a word so i'll actually put that in with another one enchanting because you see so many sweet moving things in this that are played out alongside somebody being really inhumanly hard and powerful, which is which is probably quite difficult to write. But when you do do it, I was far more moved by the entirety of Hawkeye than I was by some films and TV shows that tell me where to cry and tell me where to be happy. Stop it. Just give up. You failed. Whereas Hawkeye really did move me throughout and for the reasons yeah, that I've just discussed and that you, you, you've led me to. Though. We said that on every... Disney Plus show that we've covered, whether it was you on them or not, these shows provide the opportunity to take these characters that are in these films but don't get a great deal of focus and give them that focus and flesh them out in ways that the films don't with some of the main characters, really. We've probably had more time now with Hawkeye than we have with some other characters. We've had six hours, Mm. give or take, with him, plus his contribution to the films, whereas other characters prominent characters you've not had quite as much we probably haven't had as much banner as we've had clint now no but as i said before despite that banner and hulk have been center stage and attention grabbing even if they've had less time what they've been given in writing and direction allows them to grab attention to a certain extent just in straight character with just simple lines like hulk smash perfectly delivered by cap obviously but still putting the focus onto the Hulk. So they don't need this time. Well, maybe the actor would like the time, but they don't need it. Yeah, and what they do with Clint here is actually consistent with everything that they've done in his other appearances. I'm thinking specifically in Age of Ultron as well, because you talked about how his whole deal was he's anonymous. He's mm. the person that fires an arrow from a distance, and that's what he always wanted to be. He never wanted to be anything else. But you get shades of him actually mentoring different characters in the other films 
in Age of Ultron, for example, he gives Wanda that inspirational speech where he presents her with a choice of, you can either stay in here and cower, or you can get out there and help me fight some robots. Mm. Either way, you're fine. It's your choice. But this is our job, or this is my job, and I'm going to go out there and do it. And in Civil War, once again, he's the one that pushes Wanda into taking action. So he has been there, kind of propping up the team throughout, but without getting that focus. They give him his family in the sequel to Avengers, obviously, because that was something that Joss Whedon felt like he owed Jeremy Renner personally. Didn't you dirty in the first film with making you a brainwashed villain for most of it? So we'll give you more meaningful content here. Now that meaningful content is spun out into this, where the family angle is there and whatever. And his lack of desire to be a role model is interesting because, as I said, he has been that in a number of appearances before now. Well, there's a difference there, though, isn't there? I see what you're getting at, but I would change it slightly. He's never been a role model before. He's been a mentor before. And that might sound like a subtle difference, but I think it's quite important because I think he's quite happy to come along and give some words of wisdom as an agent of the old era supporting an agent of the new era, as an Avenger old supporting a new Avenger. We've seen him quite happy to have that chat. He's got a good relationship with his colleagues. With Nat, they can talk backwards and forwards. They can discuss things, have a bit of a joke, but also stay serious. That, therefore, support role of a wiser colleague who's been on the job longer is somewhere that he's always seemed very comfortable. Then you come along in Hawkeye and say, okay, that's quite interesting. I'm glad you're happy to do some of that. What if you were like a full-on mentor role model, though? And that's when he snaps, because it actually requires him to step beyond previously to do the advice to another agent is just uses experience in the field. And that's somewhere he's comfortable. He's comfortable being in the field and talking about being in the field. Now you come to Hawkeye, well, no, if you're going to be a mentor slash role model, you can't just talk about being in the field. You can do the bit about the coin flicking and you're perfectly happy and you can teach that really well. But when you go past the coin flicking to turn the deli off into what she really needs, which is somebody to talk about the entire life of being a hero, you've got to bring up your life. And that's where he snaps, which is I think it's a development for him. It is being asked to go further. And that's what makes the plot, and it's a good plot, because he does start to get more comfortable with it. And the development of things throughout episodes one through six was something I've put in my notes as something definitely worth talking about, because I think it's really difficult, or I assume it's really difficult to write a long-term building process plot development without repeating yourself making it seem like it is actually progressing but here i think they do do it there's the real awkward stuff at the start that's still funny with the phone and they do use it more often they don't just throw it away as a single gag they come back to the phone in later episodes. I forget which one it is, but one of the later episodes, she's still phoning him and she fills up his message box and gets frustrated. It's the fifth episode, I think that one is. So you take something in episode one and you use it to build and it comes back in episode five. I think there's quite a few things like that. Set it up, come back to it. Set it up, come back to it. And the fact that it then develops and changes throughout shows you that they've put a lot of effort into building those and you do get the payoff. So when you get to the point at the very end in episode six where Hawkeye turns 
to Kate and says, you're my partner. And she is just beeping. No funny comments anymore. It's just, I've made it. I'm here. Let's everybody celebrate this. And you know that's in her head because she is that kind of quirky, happy character. You can hear her voice in your head going, I've made it. Hands up. I've done it. Everybody bask in my glory. <laughs> and it's this massive payoff that they have spent and say, build the phone thing up, build the connection up. It's just, just, know, it's just really well done, I think, actually. I don't know if the other series managed to do that level of build up. I would argue that Falcon and Winter Soldier did that with Sam becoming more comfortable with the idea of being the next Captain America, but it's a different kind of story. Although the role model thing, actually was surprised the show didn't address this in any way. Even though he's reluctant to be one or doesn't want to be one, he already is one. And I'm not just talking about with Kate. He's a father. He has three mm. kids. He's a role model to them. That's part of the job. If you want to be good at it, you have to recognise that you are a role model for these children. You're raising them, so they're looking to you for guidance and for how to behave and so on. So I'm really surprised that Kate in particular didn't say, but you already are a role model because you have kids. Do you know, I'm actually glad that they didn't do that because to me that would have been too on the nose. It would have been too brutal. I've really enjoyed watching Hawkeye for the fact that everybody stays in character and doesn't try and make a point. Whenever you get Kate having a victory, she is making a joke at the end, or she's just smiling and she's just so happy, or she's so glad when he takes out the suits and they're both wearing purple together, and you, you get a little comedy line, I can't remember what it is. And then there's the point where she's talking about the arrows, that she has been following this chat about, when can I use the best arrows? When can I do this? What about this? The, literally the phrase, it's time for the arrows, refers back to the other ones. So they stay in character for me. I think if they'd have had a conversation whereby they thrash out the ins and outs of it, like we're doing here, we're doing a long-form analysis podcast. So we thrash out all the points. That's the point of what we're doing. If they were doing that on the show... It would have been too distracting for me because it would have felt like they'd actually sat down with a notebook and start, let's talk about all the ways you are a role model. It would have been too brutal. Whereas if they stay with what's important to them, and I think they do, because it's important to Kate to be able to call him partner. That is where the focus of the script lies, because it's important to her to be able to use the arrows to talk about suiting up, to try and help him where she thinks he needs it, which is not as a father getting back to Christmas. It's in his marketing as a superhero because he's not got the proper marketing like Tony can afford. Because they stay with that in-character relevant style, I think it's much more powerful. Even Ant-Man has better reach than he yes, has. Exactly, yeah. And she can really comment on that. I'm on Instagram. I've got Ant-Man's Instagram right here. You know, you're not there. And that's relevant to her as a... Was she college student? Yeah, she's a college student, isn't she? Yeah, she is. I would have liked to see the whole parenthood side of it the, the role model side of it addressed and maybe find some way of explaining why clint sees it differently to what kate wants from him or what kate expects from him because he does take on a parental role in her life in a way he does that naturally mm. by showing her how to stitch up her wounds and things that happens very early on it's the no 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 you're putting your plaster on wrong this is how you do it because it encourages it to heal and all that stuff so that happens very early on and then they somewhat move out of the parent-child dynamic that Clint is naturally slotting into as they go. I think the turning point for there is when Kate turns up with pizza and they put up Christmas decorations. That's when they start to meet each other on a more equal level because they're hanging out as friends rather than Clint being this teacher, even though he does teach her things in that scene. 
or in those scenes. But that's when they start to meet in the middle, I guess, that scene or that collection of scenes. I don't know. I never actually saw it as a father-daughter relationship. It was obviously there because she loses her dad and then Hawker literally smashes through a window at the same time. So <laughs> obviously it's there. But it would have been too on the nose for me to have that played up. I'm glad that it wasn't there. So I never actually saw it. So I can appreciate it intellectually, but I never saw it. For me, it was always a mentor-mentee relationship. She was an adult when they met. And she is an adult trying to find her way in the world. You're 20 years old. You haven't got a clue what's going on. You don't know what to do with your life or how to do it. She's got one of those problems solved. She knows what she wants to do, but she doesn't know how to do it. To me, it was always an adult-to-adult relationship. I never saw father-daughter, which implies childhood. And do you know what? I'm glad because it's been done too often. And I didn't want to see it for that reason, that reason alone. Also, I think it would have taken away some of her agency. I like the fact that she was an adult. She's a crazy, mad, young adult who's just nuts. But that's the way 20-year-olds are these days. But she was still somebody who knew her own mind, could make her own decisions, could put together a plan and enact it. The trouble she had was she was out of her depth because she was a new agent. She'd had a lot of training. She's been doing martial arts since she was, whatever, six years old. I have no idea. She got a bow and arrow since she was six years old. I can't remember how old she was. But you know what I mean? She got those and she'd had a lot of training. But she was like an agent out of training with no worldly experience, partnered up with an agent who had got loads of experience. And that was what I saw in them. I think it was actually a better buddy TV series than Falcon and, and Winter Soldier. Not that I didn't enjoy that. But they didn't really in that show get, for me, enough time being buddies. They had the moment where they were sitting too close together with their knees interlocking in the therapy session. They did a few things. They had a few comic moments, but they separated them out quite a lot. Whereas Kate and Clint were together all the time, constantly coming back to each other, intertwined plot lines. Everything was bringing them back. And they had that buddy dynamic as I say, of, of new agent with no experience and, and field agent with loads of experience. And because that was played out more, I didn't think I saw any of the father-daughter. But as it's just to come back to it, just for that emphasis, really glad I didn't. Didn't want to see it. Would have taken away too much from Kate for me to see her as a child. Glad she wasn't a child. She was an adult. As I say, she just needed a mentor to teach her. And I think it dodges another point that could have been trouble here. In the current world, I'm not saying that this is the way it would have been, but in the current world that we're setting up, where we're trying to push female empowerment, we're trying to say it's not balanced and women have had short shrift for a long time, this could have been the most unpalatable show you have ever seen. A white older man teaches a young woman how to live. The horror this could have been. A really awful show and it could have just fallen into a horrible place in the internet and been taken apart by horrendous teeth. And I think they sidestepped that beautifully. I think it was really clear throughout this whole show that she was gender irrelevant, a new up-and-coming agent with no field experience, and that Clint was a gender irrelevant experienced agent in the field who had something to offer. Kate was still capable. She could fight. She could make choices. She could do what she wanted. But 
Clint could actually tell her how to make better use of the skills that she'd got. So dodging that, and maybe with the whole father-daughter thing, I don't know that they would have dodged it. I think they did a really good job with the whole part of it there and glad they're in. So I don't think it was a two-sided father-daughter relationship because Kate was constantly trying to prove herself to Clint. She was trying to Mm. prove that she was worthy of that partnership that she eventually achieves. But I think for Clint, he naturally slots himself into that role because I think that's what he does with young people when he's around them. We saw it with Wanda. He took on a paternal role around her and helped shape her decisions in some way in the two films that he slots himself in at that role. I think his perception of Kate changes as time goes on when he sees that she is smart and capable. There's some really interesting bits that show up later on when they're going to break into Maya's apartment for example Clint's like okay this is what you need to do this is how I would approach it and Kate just wanders in tries to be a helpful neighbour to some old guy can I carry your bags whatever and now she's in and that's her equally valid tactic for getting around this problem of I can't get in the building so I think consistently she does things that shows Clint that she is capable but in different ways and that helps him change his perception of her as time goes on. So, yeah, I don't think it is a father-daughter relationship in the traditional sense, but I do think that Clint puts himself in that role, whether he means to or not, early on, and then it shifts as time goes on. Yeah, it does shift. I don't think it's worth challenging anymore because I think we're agreeing on the same thing rather than just the labels. I, yeah. So I would agree all that development does happen. I think all I would say is oh, I never ever saw it as a father role. Even with Wanda, I didn't see it as a father. I think I still saw it as an experienced field agent meeting somebody new. That's all. But it doesn't really matter because that's one of those things that you can just say, oh, I saw this, well, I saw that. Interesting discussion. But certainly you're right that he does develop. He stops trying to give her everything to feed her everything that she needs when he realizes that she is capable and that's part of the learn that he has to get through he has to learn that she might be an agent with no field experience but that doesn't make her helpless he stops seeing her as a kid eventually essentially i mean yeah so that's the label you see it as thinking of her as a kid i see it as thinking of an as a, an adult new to the job but again does it really matter it's, it's the same sort of thing one of the things that really worked for me was the contrast in their personalities clint was just very world weary just fed up just mm. wanting to slow down and get out of this whereas kate is effervescent and enthusiastic and really wants to get into this whole superhero game because she's glamorized it she's put it on a pedestal, she's romanticised it, and then Clint is there saying, actually, no, people die. It's pretty rough. Also, it hurts. We're stitching up our wounds here. It hurts doing this. Unless you have an iron suit or something, it's going to hurt. And he starts teaching her the realities of that, whereas Kate is doing what everyone does with superheroes. How cool would it be to be able to do this? It's like, well, it would be cool, but also at the same time, it would come with its own set of problems. Mm. And she doesn't see those problems. Yeah, absolutely. And her conversation with Yelena, where they talk about collateral damage, where Yelena says it's a bad thing, and Kate says, yeah, but it's necessary. Collateral damage is completely something that needs to happen, and you try and minimise it, but it's going to happen. Which is an interesting conversation to have when collateral damage has been a big part of the superhero movie and TV landscape for quite a while now. We discussed Batman v Superman, for example, the repeated emphasis they kept putting on the fact that there's no innocent people around, don't worry, no one else will die. They can fight to their heart content here. And Age of Ultron, the whole point was to evacuate the flying city, things like that. So the collateral damage thing has been a big part of these action films and superhero films for a long time now. And then the debate that's being had over whether it should or shouldn't happen between Yelena and 
Kate was really interesting, particularly when she was collateral damage, Kate, that is, because the Battle of New York cost her her father, the building she lived in was damaged. So she is collateral damage. And I don't think she really recognises that at first. No. Potentially more interesting, you bring up Yelena, though, is the idea of what she was, the counterpoint to Hawkeye. You've got two routes forwards here into being a hero or an anti-hero. And the Clint connection into being a hero, but a realistic one, was laid out pretty well for me. I would have potentially preferred more from Yelena's side, this whole idea of collateral damage. I think I probably needed to see a bit more of Yelena, though, to get into that, because she comes along and makes a few points, and I got hung up on Yelena's arguments, because as soon as she said something about, Kate, you should be this way, to me, it was immediately obvious, well, Yelena, you're not following any of your own rules. So are you just trying to say that to upset Kate? And that's a perfectly valid reason for doing it, because you want to get Kate out of the way. But I don't think I ever understood at the end if Yelena believed her own arguments or not. And you could say to me, yeah, but she's a Black Widow. Tough. You're never going to find that out. And I'd have to say, fair enough. But in terms of the writing, I think I would have liked to have seen more of that because I could never take any of Elena's arguments about collateral damage anything seriously as I say because Elena never ever follows her own suggestions to Kate so because of that to me in the show they were just there to try and get Kate out of the way they were not actually being supplied as reasonable counter ideology to seriously consider and when Kate dismisses them and I'm so glad she did, because I, I would have hated to have seen this mopey teen wandering back. Oh, who shall I trust? Shall I trust this person or that person? I would have just been it's so annoying. The fact that Kate stays with her convictions and says, no, I trust Hawkeye. I've spoken to him. He's been honest with me. Told me about the Ronin. We've talked about this, that, and the other. We've gone through our development together. We've had pizza together. You cannot shake my faith in him and she just goes straight back to Hawkeye they set it all up they come together with their big plan and they carry on that was really good because to me that was just dismissing Yelena's nonsense straight off the bat I have to admit though in passing I am curious to know did Yelena believe anything she said or not because I think to go down the argument you're talking about with collateral damage I would have needed to know if Yelena believed it and at the moment I think it was just bad-mouthing for the purposes of the mission, which, as I say, is fine. Perfectly good reason to do it. You want to get the person you like out of the way. But, yeah, to go further into your arguments, I think you'd have to tell me more about what was in Elena's head. Well, she's coming from the perspective of pain. So she's got a wrong-headed assumption because she's in pain, because she needs someone to blame for Natasha's death. And someone's pointed her in the direction of Clint. So, fine, he'll do. He was there. It's his fault. So that's her wrong-headed assumption. And then the whole collateral damage part of it comes in as part of that argument, the idea he's an Avenger, they're out there parading and bringing down buildings or whatever, they're doing all this, it's not great. And th I think that makes sense if you consider her skill set and her setup. As a Black Widow, collateral damage will be unacceptable for her, won't it? Because her training is to go in, take out the target and never be noticed and do it surgically. That's her approach. When she's introduced in Black Widow, she's waiting for someone through a sniper scope. So again, it's the boom, one shot, job done. And then later in the film, she and Nat tear up a city street when they're on a motorcycle and things like that. But yeah, it's an MCU blockbuster film that's going to happen. <laughs> but generally speaking, you have to imagine that 90% of Yelena's kills 
nobody would have had any idea she was anywhere near it. The same with Natasha as well when she was doing that side of things. And even the same with Clint when he was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. The whole point is he goes in, takes out the target and leaves and no one ever knows he was there. And that's what he says. So I think the collateral damage thing she believes in, I don't think she sees that as necessary, but as she becomes embroiled in this more high-profile world that she's becoming a part of, I think that perspective will maybe shift a bit. But it was an interesting discussion for the two of them to have, particularly with, as I say, Kate being collateral damage because her setup as as a side consequence of the Battle of New York. All the stuff you're saying makes sense, but for me there was something that occurred in our watching that has blocked me from being able to see this. And the reason that I've been able to say that there's no problem with Hawkeye is because the thing I have trouble with is actually the post credit scene where we see Yelena. Logically in my head I have to say, if I have trouble with something that's not in Hawkeye, I have to reset my frame of thinking and just say, it is what it is. Here's Yelena in Hawkeye. Just accept it. But seeing as we're doing long-form analysis here, and I can bring in stuff from out of Hawkeye to talk about it. Connected universe, it's all fair game. Well, this is it. The post credit scene where we see Yelena talking to the... Val. Val is something that completely invalidates Yelena taking her own words seriously in Hawkeye. Yelena says, why are you taking what Hawkeye says at face value? Why are you just letting him convince you with this charming persuasion? And I'm sitting there thinking, you had about three sentences conversation with Val and trusted every word she said and have taken a personal interest in a assassination contract because of Val's words. So as a Black Widow, you've been completely unable to see that Val has manipulated you. Either you're a really rubbish Black Widow, or you are so far gone into your emotions, of course, that you can't see it. But if you can say this stuff out loud to Kate, that you shouldn't trust somebody like Val at face value and not be persuaded by them, I kind of just thought Yelena was smart enough to be able to process that information. So she's either not as smart as I thought she was, or her emotions are off based on what I've seen on the TV and the film. Now again, cannot fault Hawkeye for this because that did not occur in Hawkeye. That occurred in a post-credit scene of a different film and is therefore completely separate. But when you bring them two together, as I say, it blocks me from taking anything Yelena says seriously and all the stuff you're talking about with her pain. I get it. That makes sense. All the stuff you're talking about with her being a Black Widow. I get it. It makes sense. But I can't get past this just naff conversation with Val that seems to set up everything. Now, you could say to me, oh, yeah, but we had a post-credit scene. So what really occurred was they had a lovely walk around the cemetery and they had a whole day's discussion. Then they met for coffee the next day and she really laid it on thick. Okay, fair enough. That is possible. But I didn't see it in that post-credit scene. You're asking me to take Elena's words based on what I'm seeing. And you're asking me in a story to take it based on what the post-credit scenes gave me. So everything you've said sounds reasonable. I just kind of wish I hadn't seen that post-credit scene. And I think I would have actually been able to take it on board as you've described it. But because I have... I'm stuck back with, no, I think Elena was playing mind games. All this stuff about collateral damage is false. She doesn't believe in any of it at all. That post credit scene, actually, it seems very irrelevant to the show in a lot of ways because Elena's only there at this point because Eleanor hired her to kill Clint, whereas the post credit scene of Black Widow suggests that she's been pointed in the direction of Clint, so she's going to go out by herself and do it. So why do you need to have her hired at all? The reason that they did it was to connect her to the main plot that the show was playing with. And to show Eleanor as this duplicitous type who's pulling her own strings or 
helping Fisk pull his strings, whatever you want to call it. But it's just very weird that the Black Widow post credit scene sets up this vendetta, which still exists in the show. She says that she's going to kill Clint because she wants to, but why does she need to be hired to do it at the same time? Surely the desire for revenge is enough. I think that would have been neater. I mean, I can explain it, but again, I'll come back to what I've just said. I shouldn't have to. I can explain it by using what we saw in some of Yelena's scenes. And I can't now for the life of me remember if I saw this in the Black Widow film or as flashback in Hawkeye. But at some point, Yelena is talking to a previous Black Widow who has had five years to give it up because she wasn't blipped, whereas Yelena was. And that ex-Black Widow says you got to earn a living. How are you going to do it? Use your skills. So the idea that she could pick up a contract that conveniently pays her for what she wants to do anyway, to me, just sounds like a very practical Black Widow decision. However, I am forced to come back to what I said. We didn't see that in this. I can put it together intellectually. And it's another thing, therefore, that I'd say I agree with you because... I don't want to have to do that. I wanted to see more of this. But again, I think that's Yelena's setup. Perversely, Hawkeye didn't get a great setup in the early films. I'm almost thinking Yelena didn't get the setup she deserved before she came under Hawkeye. And Hawkeye thought she was a great character. But all this stuff we're talking about where we wanted to see X, Y, and Z, or we could have seen that, or why wasn't it this other way? I think it's because of the setup from the other films. I think she's carrying this unfortunate legacy, which is a mm. bit perverse because so was Clint. So Clint Clearly what we need is a Elena TV show. The only way out. <laughs> could happen. Yeah. She'll definitely be back somewhere. Well, yeah. Her usage in this show was very good, though. I thought her dynamic mm. with Kate was great. That scene where they're just yeah. eating mac and cheese and chatting was brilliant. Elena's toying with Kate throughout that entire conversation. I love the repetition of Kate Bishop to throw her off base, which doesn't entirely work because Kate understands the tactic. She's clever mm. enough to understand what she's doing, but it's still off-putting. And there's also this shared knowledge between them that there's nothing Kate can do here. She is not in control of this conversation. The only way that she's going to survive is because Yelena's going to let her. And that comes into play later on where they're fighting in the lift. Which I did, as a scene, prefer... I have to admit that the style of humour in the apartment where they're talking to each other is the style of humour that I'm, I'm not so into. But I can't say that makes it bad. It was still good. But if you want to know which scene I was more into, it was definitely the lift scene. I, I loved that. That was really good. Yeah, it's where Kate was trying to press the buttons and Yelena yeah. just kept swatting her hand. It's like, nope, don't do it. Such a simple thing, but simple things can be funny if done cleverly and well. And that's... Some of the genius sometimes of scene, don't try and make something too complicated by having a three-point different angle setup through 16 films. Just set something up in episode two or three or four, whatever it is, and then have a payoff in episode six. Brilliant. Yeah. The fight is interesting as well because Yelena's massively holding back because she has no beef with Kate. She just wants to subdue her, get her out of the way so that she can get on with what she wants to do. And that ends up being the reason that she loses sight of Clint for a while, because she is trying not to hurt Kate in any real way. It's not quite a downfall, but it's along those lines. She's not operating at her best, but deliberately so. Yeah, which I think goes to the adjectives I've used, charming and enchanting. This sort of setup whereby a character purposely has a reason to take an action, in this case, limit themselves, is much more interesting to watch 
than some false problem that comes around because people aren't talking to each other, which is something this podcast is famous for happening. Why is there a problem? Because the two main characters didn't tell each other. That sort of false problem is always disappointing and a little bit annoying. But when you have a character make an in-character choice to do something that even worse for them limits their actions, that's really interesting because you want to know how long is it going to play out for? Do they have a line that they're going to cross? Are they going to have their mind changed? Can the ideology discussion really convince one person one way or another and you've got time to do it? Yeah, it was a really good relationship. The chemistry was great as well. Stop making me like you. I'm sorry, I can't help it. That kind of stuff, whatever the line was, that just banter that they had back and forth. It obviously sets up that they will interact more in the future, whether they do Young Avengers or Avengers 2.0 or whatever they're going to call it. They'll be a big fixture in there. And I think there's the beginnings of a very fascinating friendship in here. So this brings us naturally on to Yelena and Clint then. They only really have one moment where they have a bit of a fight where she's fighting to kill, but Clint isn't. And... That's quite an interesting dynamic in itself when they're just fighting. The resolution, the emotionally based resolution, which draws on the fact that they were both close to Natasha and they can connect over that. And it does give Yelena closure on that loss in a way that lets her move forward a little bit. As in, she gets the whole idea of vengeance out of her mind because she she ends up not believing that Clint is capable of killing her in the way that she had kind of convinced herself. So I thought that worked really well. It's the best ending that we've seen so far i think as well because it has that emotional significance and emotional resolution i mean you can quite happily have a combat ending where somebody wins but it can be really difficult to give the audience i think a fight they've not seen before if that's all you're going to do and if you're going to end on I have the Ren energy and you have the purple energy and it's who can push that energy the hardest. It's never really going to be that satisfying. So, yeah, this was a very satisfying ending where they point for a bit, but then they have to talk it out and the problem is defeated. Very happy with that as a resolution. The use of the whistle was an interesting one because it was supposed to be this personal signal between Yelena and Natasha that bonded them. So the fact that Natasha would trust Clint with that whistle as well essentially tells Yelena everything she needs to know about how close that connection was. I will say yes, but I wouldn't have had an emotional reaction to that by itself, I don't think. It was a good signal, but I think if you'd have had it by itself, it wouldn't have had any resonance. If you hadn't watched Black Widow, you'd be like, huh? Yeah, but it doesn't need it here because it actually has only got that purpose of being a signal to stop and consider something which is do we honestly believe that clint has that personal relationship to net now you could say yes of course they do i've watched all of the mcu from start to finish okay great but would that have made hawkeye good no it wouldn't you'd have to watch hawkeye so what i'm going to say is the signal fair enough for what it is but i'm more impressed by bringing Black Widow and Natasha into Hawkeye constantly throughout. Easy things that are Clint talking at, I mean, effectively a gravestone. I know it's not, it's a stone in the middle of New York, but effectively it's serving the purposes of a gravestone. And the constant references to Nat when Clint and Laura are talking, they have it as a language that they can communicate in 
Are you going to do it the way Nat would do it? Oh, that's Nat's move. Oh, that must have hurt you because you'll be reminded of Natasha at this point. Also, just a rather simple thing that they can have this connection and talk about Natasha and have such a strong friendship with there being no need to bring any unnecessary jealousy in, which again would have been soap opera nonsense that I've, I've not used before, but some of the previous stuff that I've railed against, or rather said I'm glad I didn't see the things that I think I would have seen in a rubbishy soap opera. So they've avoided all of that stuff constantly throughout. It's a respect. And the wife, Laura, can talk about it without there being any silly threat that just isn't there, which has that benefit of, yes, you can constantly bring in all these references to show that even now, Natasha is really important to Clint. Just little things like, oh, that's Nat's interrogation style, where I'm going to get captured and interrogate them from, from the being tied up, which is taking us all the way back to is that Avengers, was that Black Widow's introduction? Yes. Interrogating the Russians, I think. Where the guy thinks that he is in control of the situation and he is not. And just referring to that as, that's Nat's playbook that's something natasha has brought into this and oh yeah that's a great play it's a great strategy so we're gonna do it what was it they called it catch and release so i think the end point that we got was an emotive end point because they have persuaded us throughout hawkeye that this natasha is actually a bond that we both share and we believe it because We've had it in Hawkeye rather than specifically just having to pick it up by watching all the other films, which if you have seen, great. But yeah, you shouldn't need it. And you don't, I think. Yeah. And I love how they kept it street level through the explanation of what happened. I'm not going to tell you what happened. You would never believe me. And then it left it that, that left the detail out. But the important thing was that her sacrifice was what led to people coming back, saved the world. Clint credits Natasha with being the linchpin in saving the world. And that's the important thing there. And he wanted to be the one to die, but she wouldn't let him. Things like that. I think they got to the meat of that sacrifice in a way that Endgame actually doesn't without explaining all the crazy cosmic stuff that has no place in a story like this. Endgame did what it needed to do, I think. Why is the universe's magic set up this way? Who knows? Ask a Celestial or whatever. Yeah. You just have to buy into that. Once you're into it, though, I don't know that I thought the Endgame stuff was bad. I did actually believe the two of them were fighting tooth and claw to be the one to go over. That was quite well done, actually, between the two of them. I mean that it glosses over the weight of that, or glosses over the impact of that sacrifice, really, about how her sacrifice was what made it all possible in a lot of ways because someone had to die in order to get the soul stone but it, it did come nice i'm glad it was in episode six when i was watching earlier episodes i was so desperate to hear it at that point but that was impatience i think it does fit better in episode six where clint does explain we were both trying to be the one to go over the edge but she was better than me and she had to have a way and you know that's something that is true of natasha's personality and at that point actually that is true so i was really glad to feel that i wanted something earlier but it's a strange thing to live in the modern internet world where you need to get your satisfaction straight away and you kind of have to sort of tone that down like, well, it's only episode three what are you doing I'm talking about and it does fit better in episode six because it's the payoff and they foreshadowed it nicely anyway with Elena's first appearance when she throws Kate off the roof and Clint has that flashback to yes. being on Vormir it's like oh my god is this happening again no yeah. one has to happen again and obviously Elena wasn't fighting to kill again she was just getting her out of the way but mm. it was 
similar enough for Clint to be triggered like he was before the the thing I promised I won't talk about again. It's great that point as well when he realises she's safe and that he can cut the wire without her dying. Mm. (laughs) He's like, we're done. That's it. It's too dangerous now. We're done. I'm not going through this again. So it was all set up. Yeah, it is all set up. Yeah, we talked about that layering already, but you're right, it's another part of the layering. But just to take that point a bit further in a different direction, there's a trope that could come into this story too easily that I also think they avoid it. Because one of the problems of a relationship build storyline is the will they won't they nonsense that you have to go through where all they have an argument and they walk away but you know they're going to come back together again because you've just seen the advert for episode six where they're blatantly fighting together so why would you have an argument that specifically separates them because it's just going to be annoying they avoid that they actually have clint pushing away several times And it was so refreshing and delightful to see that Kate never gives up. When you talked about her having this enthusiasm, this effervescent enthusiasm, they commit to it. She gets knocked back a bit and she has to rethink it, but she always is looking for a way to get back in. And she never gets annoyed and she never has a stomp off like a teenager and has to be collected. It's another reason why I say I'm, I'm glad they never showed her as a daughter in my mind because it would have made it very teen. I'm glad it was adult because it's quite interesting to see, although Kate was childish, she did actually have quite a decent emotional build and emotional development already that she could rely upon. You saw her as a well-rounded person already, such that she didn't have to be pampered or anything silly like that. She needed experience and physical skills, which is something believably Clint could actually give her. She had her childish moments, but in a crunch situation, she never responded childishly. She said, no, I'm right. Okay, this is a problem. How can I solve her? And she got back on track. Then she did an amusing thing by filling up his phone mailbox full of messages so you still get your comedy and you don't need to lose it but i'm so glad they avoided some of those soap opera tropes that just made it so annoying well she has that moment of doubt as well when clint tells her it's over party's over we're not working with you anymore it's too dangerous there's a black widow involved we can't do this she has that moment where she talks to eleanor and says, i'm not a superhero i was never going to be one and she's almost ready to buy into that whole i'm not cut out for this life philosophy that Clint has been telling her. Then she has that conversation with Elena, which tells Kate more than anything else, I'm actually part of this whether I want to be or not, so I have to embrace it. And that's what gives her the motivation to look into things further, which I found really interesting because at that point it had escalated beyond the point where Clint could do anything to keep her out of it as well, because Elena had Kate on her radar at that point. The conversation they have really has nothing to do with Clint at that point. Elena goes to Kate for a different reason. I just think that's really adult, though. That's the yeah. good thing about there is it's very much an adult moral dilemma or an, an adult consideration rather than a childish, stompy, emotional one. It's no, you've been asked to question your ideology and potential future capabilities here. And on doing so, you turn around and think, no, I, I can do this, actually. I've seen through all these problems that have been set up, and actually, you're right. No, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, you're right. It is interesting. And one of the reasons is, I think, because they avoid a trope. What's at that point she realises, actually, I am involved now, and I can be uninvolved. And then the whole Eleanor situation proves to her that she's been more involved than she could even have imagined 
the whole time anyway. So it gets around the narrative point of forcing characters into a location or a set of circumstances for the reasons of plot. It's something that's bigger than both of them at that point. And it all comes from everything that's set up and feeding into each other. It was really well done. And obviously it was just before the third act climactic moment where Kate has that moment of doubt that she has to resolve in order to get back into what she needs to do. So it's structurally nothing you haven't seen before, but it's handled so well because it loops back to character at all points. It all feeds into what's been developed, what's been set up and where these characters are going. So it all fits together as far as I'm concerned. So that's why, even though it is a bit of a trope in a way, tropes are only tropes because they're commonly used. It's how well they're commonly used that you judge it on, I suppose. It's like a time travel podcast come back again. It's good because it's good. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, it works because it works, yeah. The Eleanor character weaving in and out, I found her really interesting, really layered as well, even though she had less time than some others. The concerned mother angle was really good, as in the, I'll only go so far, but as soon as Kate's in danger, I'm out. And that's how she tries to get out. She's in deep with the wrong people. She's very ruthless in her own way. And setting her up as a villain of sorts worked. I don't think the reveal was in any way surprising, especially because she clearly had more of a handle on the situation than she knew, than she was letting on from very early on. Her conversation with Clint is brilliant, where she just pushes those buttons specifically. You lost Natasha. I know you lost Natasha. I don't want Kate to be this for you. I don't want her involved in this. That's pretty much the confirmation that she knows exactly what's going on here and is a part of it. I don't think I saw that as an emotional manipulation in that rather brutal way, actually. I think it was the buttons, and the writers had them as buttons to press. The one thing I did like about Eleanor was not that she was a mastermind of manipulation to pushing people here, there, and everywhere, which is what I thought Fisk was. I actually saw that as a really concerned mother, and it's been well known on the news that you did lose somebody, and it's a realistic concern. I didn't read that scene as she was trying to trigger a trauma in Clint. I saw it as the very reasonable and realistic, you lose people on the job. And that's the agent's name that Eleanor knows. I mean, if someone said to me, no, you've misread the character, Eleanor Bishop is actually a very manipulative and capable person in the comics, I'd say, fair enough. But I liked it here because it was a very believable mother's conversation rather than a villain's conversation. I think you're right. I don't think the fact that she was a villain was supposed to be hidden. I mean, when they're talking to Armand at the start, you know there's something bad going on. And she's managed to make the right choices to get money back into the family. Well, your first thought is, yeah, what choices were those? So I don't think it's supposed to be a surprise. And therefore, there's no need for her to be a moustache-twirling villain. So I was pleased to see her as a villain because as a mother, she thought she had to be, which gets around some of these problems we've had with some of the other films and TV shows. Why is this person the villain? Because they're evil. It's really nice to see someone who's not evil because the plot force demands it. Yeah. She's trying to protect her daughter and she's trying to protect her status as well, mm. which is interesting. Very human, yeah. Because she's got a reputation. She has a station in life that she wants to remain on and she's motivated to do that. And they do try and trick you in a way by having Jack there because he looks like he's the gold digger only in there for the money for villainous purposes. But then by the end of the season, he's just an idiot. 
I love it when he gets arrested and he's like, this must be some mistake. I've never worked a day in my life. Yes. The gold-lined pockets rich guy. He's just never experienced the real world in any way. He's not capable of being a villain. And I do think they set that up early on, actually. When he's at the auction, he's like, can I borrow some money to bid on something? No. Yes. They give you enough teases in both directions for you to wonder, is he actually going to be a villain pulling strings and this is just an act? Or is he just a playboy? And I think you could be forgiven for going either way on that choice early on because he's set up well as both. Well, there's the fencing, isn't it? When Kate pushes him, he accidentally reveals his skill. And he's actually quite precious about it too. The jokes stop and he relies more on the sort of harder line playboy angle that might be part of his seduction style because the humor is good for part of the seduction but you do need to be able to show yourself as a serious person so he does actually go back and forth on that is he just comical is it for show to get what he wants when they actually give you the reveal at the end i was actually quite relieved that he was just a bit of a comedy character but he came into his own oh yes i shall take these people with my sword you know she killed that guy did he i mean maybe he did but let's not worry about that because he's not supposed to be the hero he is actually just the comedy person but yeah yeah, it was fun at the end. It's the, I have no idea what's going on here, but I have a sword and know how to use it. So I'm just yeah. going to attack people with a sword, I suppose. And the way that Kate's perception of him changed over the show as well worked brilliantly. For example, when she saw how positive an influence he was on her mother, like when they're dancing and things, where she looks and goes, okay, maybe he is good for her in a way. And then when she realizes that he's not behind this, whatever's going on. Mm. And she apologises to him. She's like, I completely misjudged you. I'm really sorry. So she's not someone that will stick to her convictions if she's proven wrong. She will change her mind as she goes. And then that pays off massively when the LARPers say, what about that guy? It's like, oh yeah, we have to save him too. Or whatever the line is. No, he's one of ours. He's on our side. We have to help him. I think the whole distribution of villains was actually good not just him. I think they placed everybody well because he ended up being, is he bad or is he not? And then came onto the comedy side. You've got the tracksuit bros, which are clearly comedy right from the start. And so in these incidental roles that just need to do what they need to do, they are the comedy villains that they need to be to keep the show lighthearted. Great. And then you've got the nastier villains are the ones that do turn out to be very capable. Now, some of them aren't also villains by the end but what makes them good is most of them could go either way Maya could have gone either way she could have been completely villainous and her anger at her father's dead could have led her down that route of this is how I became a supervillain. She hovered around that for a bit and then made some choices at the end. Elena, the same sort of thing she was technically a villain, made some choices was technically defeated but emotionally overcome in such a way as she is not the villain at the end. These more important for the plot villains then are well developed with reasons for doing what they were going to do. And they become threatening because they're not just the comic relief. And then Fisk, seeing him as the person behind the scenes, again, didn't really want to see him at the end. I wanted to see him as the person playing chess rather than the king on the board. And I think that end point, I would have taken him out of that a bit more. The difficulty is that Kate needed someone to fight. I might have been tempted to give her Maya, actually. 
and give her the reveal somehow. Not quite sure how I would have done it. I don't know that I've got an easy answer for that because Clint's connection to Meyer is so strong through, first of all, Clint's past as Ronin, then the deaf connection. And it kind of had to be Clint, so I can't give it to Kate. It's the only part where I'm thinking at the end, oh, I might not have done that, actually. Maybe I didn't need to. The thing that I didn't mind, though, is I was glad that Fisk, in this universe, and I have to say this universe, because I I suppose it is separate, there's a different one, is that he isn't just somebody who's really good with his mental skills and playing chess. He is actually somehow super strong. We don't know why he is and how that's come about, super soldier serum, whatever it is. We don't know what it is, I was glad to see that he was a capable villain. I never see him as a Lex Luthor that just has to pull the strings behind the scenes because he isn't up against a Superman, so you don't want him to be that. So they did a good job with Fisk, but at the end of it, it's a strange thing. There's quite a lot to get through. There's a lot of pairings to have. Right, this person needs to fight somebody. Who have we got left? Do you have to have them? And It's almost like a dance at the end with who gets who to deal with. So generally, I thought the villains were all set up really well. They're all people that I believed had a concern to deal with. Maya fighting off against somebody she thought she could trust and fall in love with. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was the end scene that she needed and didn't need to come against Fisk because she already had hers. But anyway, dance partners aside for the final episode, I would say all the villains, I think, were set up in a good way, believable, were comic when they needed to be, were serious when they needed to be and all had good backstories or places in the plot that made them believable combatants for a contest to come up against. We'll come back to Fisk in a minute, but the Eleanor resolution was something I really liked, where Kate was like, I love you, Mum, but I've also phoned the police. Mm. She doesn't let family get in the way of doing the right thing. It's Eleanor has murdered someone, or indirectly murdered someone, tried to murder other people indirectly as well. She's involved in this whole thing. She deserves to go to prison for it because she has done something horribly wrong. And I'm not going to let the fact that she's blood colour that. And making that distinction that I love you, but I have to do this to you. I thought that was a really complicated and interesting resolution. It's good for her as a hero, I think, because she could have had just a combat ending with Fisk. And that would have made her believably the next Hawkeye. Fair enough. But we've had plenty of combats with Elaine already. We've had a fight with Meyer. It wouldn't have been a rounding off of the show because it wasn't an action show. It was an emotional piece with action thrown in. So it's a necessary capstone on her development as if you wish to be a hero... It's not about going to the martial arts lessons. It's not about how well you can fire this bow. It is about the decisions that you can make. And you have made a heroic decision at the end there by choosing to do this with your mother. So that was her ending. That was, in theory, her final dance partner in this hero versus villain setup. And it was the emotional ending that matches Clint's when he faces off Yelena. So, yeah, the fact that they end on these emotional points, these character development points is only something that makes the series the best of them all. And there's other elements added into what Kate learns as a result of this. Her entire worldview is completely shattered by this knowledge. She knows that she's from a privileged position. In fact, she exploits that privilege where, well, yeah, I can destroy a priceless building and not really suffer any consequences because I'm a rich girl. And early on, Eleanor says, you're rich and young. Those are two great things to be. It's that idea that 
Kate is a bit untouchable, but she's also starting to recognise where that privilege came from, and that's unpleasant because it came from crime, it came from corruption, it came from whatever else. I don't think they're trying to make a commentary on wealth and classism in society or anything like that. I think it was just more a personal thing. And Kate somewhat rejected her privilege, but she also recognised it and was able to use that in a lot of ways to benefit herself. And they could have easily leaned into that and turned her into a bit of a spoiled rich girl, but she's not that. She does have an understanding of reality, I suppose. So I found all that interesting as well. Sure, yeah. So Fisk, we said we'll come back to Fisk, let's do it now. Might as well. We'll get to Maya because that's important. We'll, we'll lead into that from Fisk anyway because they're connected. So Fisk coming back, obviously that's a big deal because he was in the now-defunct Netflix universe, I guess we can call it that, because they're not necessarily completely connected. They don't tell you either way here, although the way the Fisk is, we know he didn't have that supposedly close relationship with Maya in that show because she was never mentioned, things like that. So mm-hmm. he has a different version that's essentially the same version. And he's different in the sense that he runs the tracksuit mafia. He also says, this is my city, so you have to infer that he's running all sorts of other gangs. He is the kingpin, after all, known as the kingpin, so he probably has interests in other ways. And I do agree with you that him putting himself on the board in the final episode seems a bit too reckless for someone in his position. Mm. He wouldn't go after Eleanor himself. He would send someone to go after Eleanor. That's what you do with Kazi, right? Mm. That's why he exists. Or you could hire anybody. I don't know. This could be a way for them to introduce another MCU villain out of nowhere. Bring Bullseye back at the same time. Send Mm. Bullseye. He's the guy to do that. Kate versus Bullseye would have been an interesting fight. I mean, maybe that would have been one return too many for the show. But I didn't buy into the fact that he felt like he needed to be there because he didn't. He could have hired someone. He probably has people on his payroll that he sends to do these things. I'm thinking back to my main, before I read the comics anyway, my main experience of Fisk was from the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. I know you got it from there as well because we've discussed it in the past. But he is that guy in that show for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. where he's pulling the strings, hiring the villain. It takes like three seasons for Spider-Man to find out the Kingpin exists. Yeah. It isn't until Daredevil shows up on that show that he learns the truth. Fisk keeps dodging Spider-Man for finding out because he only ever tangles with the villains that Kingpin send rather than him himself. And that's great. I think that's maybe what they're setting him up as for this. But the fact that he got himself involved in the Eleanor thing was a bit strange and as you say the super strength thing he seems like he shrugs off more because again in that Spider-Man cartoon and in the comics he's not overweight it's all muscle but he still has that kind of rotund shape so people misjudge him in that way but yeah he's supposed to be very very strong but shrugging off that explosion I can believe that he might shrug off the arrow but not the explosion yeah a good fisk but yeah I've already said it I didn't want to see him on the chessboard I do want to see him talking to Eleanor that is the right level for me he is somebody who's hired Eleanor and she is one of his lieutenants so she is somebody that he is exerting power through so I see him talking to Eleanor but if you go lower than that why are you wasting time as you say you've got people paid to do this and he's actually crafted Meyer as a weapon and you want to keep your weapon under control you need to make sure that it's pointed at the right people and not pointed back at you so you have to get personally involved at that point so i I see those as these lieutenants that he would speak to but then i can see him doing that by summoning them to him which he does do with them that's the whole point of being king they come to you so i wanted to see him constantly in his version of the tower that we saw in that spider-man cartoon 
the Chrysler building as it was in the cartoon. <laughs> he just owned the Chrysler building. There you go. That's how rich he was. I liked what we were shown. I just wouldn't have brought him down to the street, that's all. I think that's the sort of thing that comes into the third season of wherever he's going to be next because he spent two seasons being in the tower and it's not worked and he gets desperate. And then the end of season three is where he's forced to come down to deal with it because nothing else is actually getting to it. So it was far too early in a plot to bring that up because it seems to undermine all the good work they've done already by saying Hawkeye is not afraid of Kingpin because if it came to a physical fight, you've got to believe that an Avenger is going to win. But that's not the point. That's not the power that somebody like Fisk really wields. That's a bonus power that I've got just for fun. But his real power is, yes, I can be threatening to an Avenger because I can do all these economic and probably much worse things when I think about it that he would not want to be involved in. And then when he turns up in a shop full of teddy bears, mm, well, yeah, not quite showing the power <laughs> I hoped you would do there. With his floral shirt and his little hat as well. Still look terrifying. I want to show my power. I'm powerful in a full shirt. And I believe you. And (laughs) I'm not going to tell you anything about your fashion sense here because I don't want to end up on the floor or worse. He can wear whatever he wants because he will crush you if you make fun of him for it. That's also a reference to a Spider-Man comic. He wore that shirt in a Spider-Man comic. Fair play. Yeah, I'm told there were loads of references throughout this that I wouldn't get. Like every time you see a number, it's actually a comic book reference and this, that, and the other. I have to admit, I am going to have missed all of those, but oh, there's lots of reliably informed, yeah. they were there everywhere if you were looking. I don't know the comic run that this is based on well enough to have picked up on all of them, but some of them you just know that they're Easter eggs because of the way that they draw your eye to it. Yeah. But yeah, with Fisk fighting Kate, it was a great sequence because he was terrifying. Mm. He loses because he underestimates her as well because he snaps the arrows and he thinks that threat's over now. Mm. And then he ends up just standing near them and getting caught up in the explosion. It was great. And well, we know from Daredevil how terrifying a physical presence he can be. And you got all that complexity, even though he was only in three scenes, really. Yeah. Through the way that he talks to Eleanor by making it clear that, no, no, you are still under my control and you're not leaving my control. And if you even try, there'll be consequences. And then when he speaks to Maya, you get that compassion you believe that he loves her because of D'Onofrio's performance but there's also more to it than that and that's what he tries to say to her at the end whereas sometimes family don't see eye to eye on different things so that connection he has to Maya isn't going to stop him from doing whatever he feels he needs to do even if it damages her in some way so her father had to die according to his design but that doesn't mean that he doesn't care for her any less the only thing about that setup that I would challenge but I think it's something that we can probably be cured when we see Echo, whenever that's coming out. The cheap trick of the Saturday afternoon film of there's a sound of a gunshot, but you don't see it happen. You're like, really? You're really going to go for that just now? But if it has some sort of payoff in Echo where they show us the scene again and she does something like actively shoots to the side and says, you owe me now, and I want this, that, and the other to be set up for my new venture. As long as they do something like that... I'm not really precious about what it is. I just don't want it to be a cheap trick. I want there to be something in it that, that they can capitalize on. But otherwise, everything else that you've said, yeah, I'm totally on board with the fisk that we were given. And it's nice that Kate defeats him in the way that you say. So it is believable 
and shows part of Kate's development. Somebody's not appreciated that whilst allowing us, therefore, to have the Fisk that we know is stronger than that. But he made a mistake. And nobody minds, I think, characters making mistakes. But it would be weird if he is just defeated by Kate. And then somehow we have to believe that he won't be defeated next time. Maybe. You know, how do you defeat a bad guy without actually defeating them? Really difficult to write that. So having it done by Yes, he made a sidestep. He made a mistake. Well, he won't make that mistake next time. Brilliant. Works really well. It was set up immediately that he didn't take her seriously. She points the arrow at him and he says, what are you going to do with that? Mm. Then she shoots him and he just shrugs it off and keeps coming. And Mm. then when they're in the shop fighting, he's toying with her in some ways. And it's pretty clear he doesn't see this, from his perspective, tiny girl as a threat. So he's just going to take his time and demolish her. But he doesn't realise that she has some tricks up her sleeve. Because she's able to think on her feet, we know that. We've seen that throughout the show. And Mm. she does. She thinks on her feet. The arrows being snapped doesn't render them useless. I'm going to agree with all of that. Although I do think and it might be worth challenging one word there, which is tiny girl. And I'm, I'm not trying to get it yourself, but I'm pretty happy that Hawkeye did actually deal with gender well by not dealing with it, as in didn't need to. I don't think they fell into any pitfalls. I don't think anybody was suffering any bigotry. I don't think the writers were. I do honestly believe that when they were writing this, if somebody looked down on somebody, it was because they thought they were inferior in a skill sense. I'm not, I'm not saying you chose that word on purpose. I just think it's important to highlight that I think they did a really good job matching modern sensibilities in Hawkeye. I don't think anybody could challenge any of it. He didn't look on down because you were a tiny girl. He looked down on her because you're the sidekick. You've just started doing this. So he's looking down on her as a newbie. I'm not saying you use the word girl there, but I think it's just important to highlight that I think Hawkeye did a really good job with that side of modern sensibilities. Oh, yeah, he doesn't call her that, but... No, he doesn't, no. The physicality of what's going on there, he's this towering behemoth of a person, and by comparison, she is very small, and you're meant to buy into the fear of Fisk in that scene because he's just this relentless tank that keeps coming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is great. I don't think we really saw that in Daredevil as such. We saw him as a formidable physical presence, but not in the sense of him being this monster that's just unstoppable. Oh, no, he's had an upgrade slightly because he could physically fight in Daredevil. And the superhero powers that Daredevil has aren't to make him Superman strong. So it was actually two people who were really physically capable. This was a definite upgrade, but not an unwelcome one. It fitted, it worked, it didn't seem unreasonable. Just made you curious. Oh, I wonder how that came about. Yeah. So Maya then, in some ways, is a bit of a backdoor pilot for her Mm. own show that we're getting. And Alacqua Cox has never really been in anything before this, which is interesting. So they found her somewhere. She's a legitimate deaf amputee who is playing this character. And I think it feeds into one of the ongoing themes of the show as well, the whole idea of communication. It comes up so many times. Yes. Clint having to communicate with Kate, Kate communicating with her mother, Clint communicating with his family, Clint communicating with the LARPers, with everybody. And Maya having that barrier with people because of the way she communicates. She can't talk to anyone else in the tracksuit mafia except from Kaze because they don't speak ASL. And again, Fisk communicates with her in that way. So... They do the great piece with the communication 
angle through her. And I love the flashback setup we get of her backstory, that whole she gets sent to a public school rather than a school for the deaf because it's about learning how to operate in the world that she's going to be living in. It's not about shielding her from certain things. It's not about anybody feeling sorry for her because of the fact that she's deaf and she has a a false leg as well. That determination is set up very quickly in the way that she's always fighting to win, always maybe in her mind working for that approval. But they don't go into that. They don't go into that. No one takes me seriously. People obviously take her very seriously. No one questions her authority. No, I don't think that came up at all. I think you're right that it was all more about communication and and the failure to communicate. The reason that a lot of things go wrong is because people have misjudged something or been unable to say what they needed to say. I don't think she was ever portrayed. There was no possibility, really, of her being considered weak, apart from as a very young child, obviously, having to learn how to grow up and be capable, which is, of course, arguably, something every single child goes through. But it's a different path that she has to take. It's a different obstacle that she has to learn. So... Yeah, I don't think they ever labelled the point that, oh, look, got all these problems and we have to treat her a certain way. I think they avoided all of that. Yeah, it's a different set of challenges for her, but they're valid challenges in the same way that any child will have difficulty adjusting to certain things. But she just had more to deal with than your average child. Arguably took it further and better than your average Joe did. But that's a comment on her character and personality. Yeah, and I think they did enough with her connection to Kazi to make that betrayal hit hard when it did. Because mm. they didn't have much time with either of them, really, and they didn't have much time together, but it did enough. The fact that he's the only one that she can talk to, because he's the only one that's bothered to learn sign language. Although, to be fair to the tracksuit mafia, they were set up to be a bit naff. That was kind of yeah. their reason for being. So you can't really say, well, why didn't you learn this? Well, because the writers made them that way. <laughs> They were good fun with that, of course, so it was done with purpose. Well, it was utilised well because she's in charge of them but can't directly tell them to do anything, so her Mm. instructions are filtered through Kazi to those guys. Yeah. So that worked brilliantly. And her emotional journey mirrors Kate's in a way because she has her worldview shattered in the same way that Kate does. She learns that everyone she thought she could count on has been lying to her. She learns that everything isn't as it seems and the way that Clint is the one to deliver that news was interesting there was almost a Batman quality to that action sequence when Clint just took down the incompetent henchman around before directly approaching Maya and then Maya holds her own in a fight with him as well he is still more skilled yeah although he's fighting for a different reason he's fighting for a different purpose he only wants to subdue her so he can talk to her and that really works the way that he drops that bombshell on her because he feels that she deserves to know. And that's his way of changing the situation. The important villain takedowns are done not through physical defeat, albeit you might have to do a little bit of that to make someone actually listen to you, but they are done through an emotional delivery or reveal. Even that one that's not a finale has the same theory behind it, the same plot crafting, and is all the better for it and then it's after she learns that she doesn't go straight to fisk and confront him she goes to him and says it's been rough i need a couple of days off and fisk Mm. thinks that he's fine at that point he doesn't think that she's on anything it's like yeah take all the time you need he's disarmed by his compassion in a way for her and she manipulates that and then she comes for him and yeah that 
gunshots. Obviously not going to kill him. Imagine all the hassle that was involved getting D'Onofrio back in the mix. Not going to kill him right away. No. I thought Fisk did see through it, though, actually. I'm sure he said something to have Carnesy follow up on it, even if it was just keep an eye on her. I forget it was. I have to go back and watch that now. Yeah, he says something to Kazi about Maya doesn't need to know about this or whatever after their conversation. And it's interesting now, he doesn't even wait till she's out of earshot, so he's, in a way, taking advantage of her deafness to just say what he wants to Kazi. Well, that's one of the things I quite liked about Fisk. He's shown to be truly evil. I mean, we need to know his backstory, but evil and manipulative. He organised Ronan to come and kill her father. He has got Meyer as one of his super weapons, but he uses Kazi to keep her on a leash, which is another form of manipulation. And I want to see that in my big end-of-level bad guy. He is not a nice person, but he's very clever. And at the end, he does order the hit on Meyer, I'm sure, and gets Kazi to do it. He is evil, but he's also intelligent. Not to take away from the Maya discussion, but just to bring it back, although they're writing Fisk as believably intelligent. That's why it is so weird when he actually steps onto the chessboard. Yeah, and the connection to Maya is what makes Fisk's appearance in the show work as well, or part of what makes it work, because they set him up as being a major player within the framework of this show. It's mm. not like with Kang and Loki, where he just turns up and it's like, don't worry, this guy will be important later. It's established within the framework of what they're doing here. And then when he appears, it makes sense. So if you haven't seen the Daredevil show and Fisk turns up in this, Mm. you're probably going to be okay with it because he's not come from nowhere. He is connected to this plot and these characters in very tangible ways. It's not, oh, it's the guy from Daredevil and that's something you should care about for some reason. It's meaningful for what they're doing here. A lot of that's due to Maya because you know that that connection is strong. I think what's the most interesting question that you can ask for Maya, though, is if they are trying to force an Echo TV series, do we think they've actually set up an interesting and complex enough character to build a TV series out of? Do you reckon they have? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And it was a smart choice to have her be affiliated with a gang for this show and break that connection in this show. So then when we pick up with her, it'll be her building this new life for herself or figuring her next move. And is she going to be a hero? Is she going to be a villain? Is she whatever? Because she is more complicated than just that in the comics. And there's rumours flying around about how they'll use the Echo show to sideload the other Daredevil characters in, which now that Fisk is here, that seems more likely. that you might get Matt Marduk turning up, especially if they want to create a connection between him and this version of Fisk and set up who he is and stuff. I would really hate for her show to just be a backdoor pilot for a revival of Daredevil, though, because I think she's better than that. I'm really interested to see how they're going to tackle the whole lead in your show speaks using ASL. Because it works. It's not in the word intrusive is wrong. It doesn't impact here as heavily as it could or should, because it only crops up when she's A, on screen, and B, speaking to other characters. We to see how much they make of it, though, because one of the defining points of the plot she gets here is that the main character is also using sign language. Now, that does make her a part of Clint's plot, but she is part of Clint's plot. It's Hawkeye. So that's that's not actually an issue. But I wonder what they'll do with it when they don't have that. Or will they introduce another deaf character so it remains part of it? Does that make it too defining such that you're saying, let's make a real big deal about her being deaf? Or is it 
an interesting thing that you want to bring in and, and talk about because we don't really have a lot of representation in the MCU, Disney, this and we're starting to get more in Disney, of course, they're becoming much more interested in, in it. But it's not something you've seen a lot before in your superhero stuff. The reason I bring it up is because again I thought Hawkeye dealt with its representation and its dealing of modern sensibilities really well. It leads me to trust that whatever they do with Echo well I'm saying that, let's assume it's a similar writer set, but I actually don't know, maybe saying that i suppose it'll be a totally different writing team maybe yeah i'm not sure they've probably announced who's going to be dealing with it but i don't have that information at hand no, no. they'll at least have another character that can speak american sign language obviously yeah. because otherwise she can't talk to anybody no if daredevil does turn up how are they going to communicate <laughs> she speaks using sign language and he can't see so <laughs> what's going to happen there surely that's already been resolved in the comics hasn't it they must have already dealt with that yeah i don't remember how they did it though Mm. Maybe they'll be fighting and Foggy will be standing off on the sidelines just translating. Mm. Or Karen or someone. <laughs> You're just going to bring all these characters back. They must have already thought through this. It must be a thing. It'll be interesting to see how they structure that show and they build that around that. The perversity of it is, it's only something that us in our world of sight and hearing are thinking oh isn't this interesting but actually there will be people out there not necessarily considering this podcast in one way or another but say well yeah i'm a deaf person i've met blind people before we just do this it's normal you know get over yourself so it's going to be a normal thing for us who are in this position to sit there and go right okay yeah Nope, so it was me that didn't follow that. Isn't that why representation matters in the first place? Well, not in the first place. The first reason for representation mattering is that people get to see themselves in these things that they enjoy. People finally feel seen and whatever. But also there's an education piece associated with it for what I've just said. How would a blind man and a deaf woman communicate? Well, yes, and that's the responsibility for the rest of us here to pick up, to say, yeah, this is actually something that is just as normal and just as relevant as everything else. Yeah, but she was a great character in this. I think she worked well within the framework of this show, fed into the theme of communication, having her journey mirroring Kate's with the whole shattering of her worldview and taking that step forward with that knowledge. It was great to connect them in that way. I think that was a very smart choice. So, yeah, nothing but praise for Maya Ooh. as she was depicted in this show. And we'll see what Echo is like whenever that appears next well, year, yeah. this year. Who knows? I have no idea when it's due to come out, but it's happening. So, great stuff. On the deafness point as well, I like that Clint is... I don't like that Clint is slowly going deaf. That's a shame for him. But I like that it adds into the whole, he's just a guy set up that they keep playing with. It's like, how did this happen to you? It's like, I don't know. I've been around a lot of explosions, Petco. <laughs> it's just the consequence of if you're near explosions, your hearing will be impaired by it. That's just the way it is. But the way they used that was brilliant. As we talked about the conversation with his son where he couldn't hear his son, that was great stuff. It is the reason why Batman will always be one of my preferred superheroes in DC because he is a normal human and he's had to step up and he's proved that he can. I know you have your problems with Batman and and the delivery of it at least, but I think that holds up as a point. And it's one of the reasons why Hawkeye and Black Widow, and to be fair, Iron Man, 
will be some of the better or rather sometimes more interesting superheroes in Marvel just because they have had to step up as well. I know I'd like to see a bit of Banner now and again, but I don't really get anything out of Banner beating up what's the name of the villain we saw? The Abomination. The Abomination. I really didn't get much out of the Hulk fighting the Abomination. That sort of stuff doesn't appeal to me, but this sort of stuff where you've got a normal human being having to step up and work outside of what is considered to be a reasonable fight zone for a human. So it's just somehow much more attractive. But yeah, they do it well, and they do have to constantly remind you, I think, that he does have these human failings. Well, they don't have to, but they do. And that choice to do so, I think, makes everything these people do that much more impressive. And he has consequences. Yeah, you can't be near that many explosions without having consequences. But do you give up and go and sit in a house in the middle of the nowhere? No, you carry on. You have something happen to you in life. You didn't get to choose that. Too bad. But you have to choose to keep on fighting. And the people that do have a problem and choose to keep on fighting after it are, of course, going to be hailed in our normal life as being heroic. Translate that onto the screen and we see them as as superheroes, but same thing. And, And yeah, very attractive to watch. And it's a clear example of the realities of what Kate has put on that pedestal as well. If you don't have powers, there's going to be things you're going to have to deal with. Very real, unpleasant things, such as having your hearing damaged to the point that you need a hearing aid. Yes. And just so as you know, you, unlike Thor, can't take a punch from the Hulk. You are going to have to try and do things cleverly. Couldn't even take a punch from Fisk, never mind the Hulk. Yeah, there you go. Be sensible, be clever, which of course we know Kate has been shown to be, but yeah, she needs to learn to apply it in all circumstances. And Clint's Hearing issues fed into one of the best action sequences I'd seen in a long time where they couldn't communicate and Clint was just telling her what to do. (laughs) She was protesting and she just had to do what she was told because denying it wouldn't accomplish anything. She wouldn't be able to articulate it. I thought that was a great sequence. Just for the, again, the trick arrows, the pim arrow and all that stuff. Yeah, the sequences where they just use a cool toy are going to be quite fun. But if you use an arrow, it's not going to be massively impressive. The horde of zombies at the end in the tracksuit mafia coming in. I mean, it it was a spectacle. It was interesting enough. But it's going to be eminently forgettable in comparison to the scenes where you create a problem that is unique to your characters, which having, as you say, him being deaf is one. So that sequence is much more interesting than the minor little fight at the end. But that was just an introductory aperitif fight to get you to the real stuff. So we didn't want any more than that. But it was really well done how they worked together and Clint was like, fire this arrow and the Pym one was hilarious, just makes his arrow huge and just impales the pickup truck. Mm -hmm. But those sequences are always more interesting when there is character basis to them. The point of that sequence is they are struggling to communicate and that's changing the dynamic, that's changing the way this plays out. It's really great. And I like that climactic sequence on the ice as well because again it was very character driven it was that display of partnership Mm -hmm. they're fighting as equals and yeah they are faceless henchmen that they're shooting at but there was an emotional weight to it because of what was happening and what had been building to and what was represented by it that moment of it's time i can use the trick arrow so that was immensely satisfying 
Yeah, those are the best parts where it's episode six for both of them. You're my partner, where he actually says it and she's beaming and then it's time for the trick hours is the payoff for that. They are much more satisfying than any number of tracksuits that you can take down. Although I will say, it's got to be some sort of world record in there for a number of people pacified by an arrow that involved no death or bloodletting. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Apart from those guys that definitely got eaten by that owl. That was a bit unfortunate, but you can't win them all. <laughs> yeah. It's a massive nitpick, but I do wonder about the shrinking the, the truck because it was established in the first Ant-Man film that unless you're wearing a specially treated helmet, being shrunk and grown will drive you insane. So they're just not worrying about that. You have to remember that between each film, technology is advanced. So. Yeah. <laughs> also, considering how private Pym is about his tech, it's funny how Clint has an arrow with Pym on the label. Is Hank Pym less... Precious about his tech now, is he selling shrinking stuff? Well, being somebody who has not seen Ant-Man 2 yet, I can't tell you the development of said character. Well, the second film doesn't end with him saying, I'm going to go into business and sell this. Moving companies will love me. I mean, moving companies would love him. They can just shrink everything down and put it in one box. that will just grow up at the other end. Yeah, it's a nitpick. It was very funny when it shrunk and it's like, now just what happens to these guys? I don't know. I'd have to ask Scott about that one. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, it's a jerk. I also laughed when Clint was in the tree and then he saw the LARPers coming out in their gear and he's like, <laughs> we're going to die. Just that dry delivery worked for me brilliantly. So I'm glad you brought up LARPers because it needs to come out as the only gamer in the room. I think it needs to bring this up. You're the expert. It was definitely going to be in here. Yeah. I was thinking at that point that in the universe that they have created with the MCU, the bit that the LARPers do at the end where they say, how can we get recognition and respect from a crowd of people? We can dress up like superheroes and it works. And you thought it would work. After the Battle of New York, nobody's going to pay too much attention to what the army tells you to do. But if somebody dressed as Thor comes out and says, go left, (laughs) you're totally going to go left. You could believe that. Yeah, I believed it completely, yeah. Yeah, it actually made a rather strange thing to sneak into a show, LARPing. It could be crowbarred in so poorly without thought. But actually, when you come to that scene and you think, no, that actually works by the physics of this universe, that crowbar seems to vanish. And it does seem to have a little bit of plot purpose, comedic plot purpose, but plot purpose nonetheless. I was pleased to see the LARPers come back in, actually, because at the start, I was very much, oh, is one of the writers a LARPer? And they did, they just want to get it in there. (laughs) Not really sure about this. I thought they were respectful to LARPing. It didn't take the mickey out of it. They didn't just say, this is something stupid people do. Let's laugh at them. I thought it was respectful. In the way that Big Bang Theory is completely disrespectful to gamers, this, I thought, did a a really good job with that. And then in the episode six, you do actually get your payoff. You get a little bit of payoff earlier on when you get someone says, we're going to make your costume for you. I'm not quite sure what kit they had, though, that allowed them to just use a standard LARPA's sewing kit to sew <laughs> armoured cloth. But I decided to leave that one alone because, as I say, the payoff at the end with the LARPA's costumes and the respect given to a superhero was totally worth it. Well, the LARPA's were a prominent fixture throughout as well. Mm. When I saw episode two, I thought, we're never going to see these people again. But then they just kept turning up and they kept turning up for justifiable reasons. 
for example, I need a police officer to do some evidence tampering. And she was like, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> Which was a bit strange, just how willing she was to do that. Yeah. The joke about the bag as well, it's like, this is my bag, I'm going to need it back. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they were definitely believable people and they were definitely respectfully treated and they definitely worked and they had purpose in the setup. The only thing that bothered me slightly was that all of the LARPers had really good, useful and appropriate jobs for the circumstance. Oh, I'm a fireman. I'm a policeman. I was thinking, hang on a minute, where's the board office worker that's just trying to get by through the day so he can finally get out LARPing because the only interesting thing has got going on. I mean, there were no slightly overweight LARPers. <laughs> they were all really fit. Not even in the background of the sequence. I'd have to look again, but none of the main characters were anything other than, well, I don't know if they were CW pretty people or not, but they kind of sort of were. Hollywood LARPers. Hollywood LARPers. LARPers don't need representation. <laughs> In the gaming community, I'm going to say we're probably fine. It was the only thing I thought wasn't quite real was uh, the LARPer with the crap job who really didn't like it. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been any use to the rest of the plot, I suppose. But he wouldn't have been any use, yeah. So he couldn't have been there. There was the overweight guy. He was in the lineup at the end. Was it? Oh, right. right. Okay. When they were tasked with being waiters, and I think time for my waitressing skills to shine, you know, I'm going to be the best waiter ever. You really need this. That's a small thing. So I, I would say I was very pleased with that. It was very respectful. Well, the occupation side of it actually stood out to me because you have the guy who's a fireman who was wearing the Ronin suit, and he's like, look, I, I want to be a hero please let me kill you in front of all these people so I can be seen as a hero. You pull people out of burning buildings for a living. Does that not make you feel enough like a hero? This is the thing. Some of us got into gaming as a distraction from reality, and you're yeah. not really sure that these LARPers got into it for that reason. And maybe they just thought it was fun. Maybe there's been a huge influx into LARPing because of superheroes being real. And if somebody said that to me as part of the MCU, I would say, again, yep, fair enough. I totally get that. Somebody with a marketing degree in LARPing has thought, we could make money off this, let's do it. Because our world has made going to see superhero films something accessible to the general public. You go into there and you know you're going to see all manner of people. So maybe an alien invasion is the best thing to happen to LARPing. And my fellow gamers just don't realize that they should be praying for an alien invasion in the real world to really maybe, yeah. get LARPing going. But it was the specific, I want to be seen as a hero motivation that stood out to me because he is a fireman. If he was the board office worker, I would have completely bought it. Absolutely, yeah. And you didn't need him to be a fireman for anything, actually, after that point. The only reason he was a fireman, because he was there and saw the Ronin suit and took it. That's the only reason he was a fireman. No. But you could have someone else, I don't know. Maybe it's like, my friend is a fireman, gave me this suit, because he knows that I LARP. I don't know. Ultimately, it's, as you say, it's a small nitpick. I wasn't that bothered. They used them pretty well throughout otherwise. And I know plenty of LARPers who make their own costumes, of course, and having that in Hawkeye alone will be something where somebody can go, yeah, we do that. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, the action sequence that was built out of the LARPing thing was really good. It was obviously played for laughs. It's this yeah. skilled killing machine <laughs> having to play with people that don't know what they're doing and the way that he just tears through them because he just uses his skills. Oh, by the way, you're putting this out on the internet. Don't be saying to LARPers they don't know what they're doing with weapons. There are people that go through some serious training but not to the extent that Clint 
will be... That's what you need to lead with. Just go back, change what you said. <laughs> Don't say they've got no ability. Just say compared to an Avenger, you're not up to it. Any LARPer that wants to challenge that is the guy that you don't want to be hanging out with anyway. Compared to Ronin, yes. they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. This is a guy that could gut an entire gang with a sword in like half an hour. I'm just saying keep it relative because Chris has got the entire Boba Fett fan base hunting him down. You've potentially got a bunch of LARPers out there coming for you. So just trying to keep you both safe. That's all it is. They'll come at me with their foam swords. Don't even go there. <laughs> I won't bother explaining why, but you're still treading on thin ice here. <laughs> well, it was a foam sword in there. Yeah. I tend to enjoy sequences like that where it's the person with immeasurable skill going up against people that aren't on the same playing field. The only major example that comes to mind is a film called This Means War, if you've seen that. If not, I'll tell you. The premise of the film is that Tom Hardy and Chris Pine are secret agents or government agents or whatever, and they both have the hots for Reese Witherspoon and they compete over her. And there's a scene in that film where Tom Hardy and Reese Witherspoon go paintballing and Tom Hardy just tears through everybody with his marksmanship skills he just goes across the paintballing field and just shoots everybody it reminded me of that and that's what that scene was except clint was clearly less enthusiastic than tom hardy was in that scene just anything to get through this just anything to get i love that just oh my god what am i doing here what's going on here when he has to sign up and it's like can you take this costume back? It's like, yeah, because they will charge you for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stuff like that. That was good. And the little bout that they have at the end of that sequence that they have in the arena and Clint has to make it look good. <laughs> he has to make it look like he's been legitimately defeated. Yeah, no, all good. We talked about this offline at some point where you mentioned that the battle would be a very, very small part of a meet. Yeah, the whole thing about live action role playing is that there is actually normally a lot of role playing rather than just it's not a battle reenactment society. But to be fair, I'm not quite sure how you could have gotten the role playing angle into it. So it was the right thing to pick for an Avenger who's based on martial skills. I suppose Grills, and that was his name. Grills could have said, I want you to pretend to be my best friend for the rest of the day so he has to go to the feast and whatever else. Well, yeah, <laughs> I see that there could have been some comedy in there, actually. Clint has to just sit there and get through some dinner thing, pretend that this guy that he's just met is his best friend. But yeah, I'm glad that the LARPing bit was on point. I did wonder about that when I saw it because I don't have any connection to it. I've not really mm. immersed myself in that world in any way. So I just saw it as kind of a funny alternative take on an action sequence yeah used well yeah it was i think the action in general was really good in this show except maybe in the first episode i think the point of that was to show how inelegant kate was at that point how she had skills but needed them honed which is a big part of what we've talked about oh yeah that's the point she obviously had skills and she had the confidence to back them up as well where she was talking about being the best archer in the world or whatever it was yes but there's going to be a difference between fighting rough three people in a wine cellar and having a very organized martial arts bout in a defined ring you were glad that she was able to hold her own but you didn't expect her to be perfect because they're different things yeah and i think we are approaching the end of our discussion so is there anything that we haven't covered that you definitely want to cover i did take a couple of notes i thought were worth mentioning the general avoidance of exposition was good so i said the only expedition that i didn't like was the watch really explaining how the watch was necessary but everything else i thought was brought in 
on point in the plot in character. One of the most noticeable was the montage. The only montage they use is an appropriate montage because it's over the opening credits where they give you Kate's journey from asking for her first bow to being an adult with all the skills. And they could have shown that with scenes played over music of her going through school into high school, into college, winning martial arts, giving her loads of trophies and so on. But they didn't. They put it over the opening credits where you're already sitting watching anyway. I just thought that was a really neat shortcut that gave you information at a point where you're probably not watching the credits. Some people might fast forward them. Some people might go get a cup of tea. But if you are watching them, there's actually still something for you. And it's not in the way of the plot. It stood out for me. I, I just really like that. Maya's origin, that was a montage. And the Christmas decoration, Christmas jumper sequence was a montage as well. Oh, I missed those. I'm sorry, I didn't miss them. I would have seen them. Well, actually, do you know what it was? Because I'm thinking of episode one. So I've got my notes in order of episodes, of course. Oh, so. I see. Okay. But there wasn't at that point. But yeah, fair enough. You're right. There are further montages. But I don't think any of them were bad, actually. No, no, they, were, they all worked. It conveyed what a montage is supposed to do. Yeah. Progression over a longer period of time in a short period of time. So, fair play. Okay, I can't make that one claim, but I can claim that I just thought it was a neat use of the opening credit. Yeah, no, that worked really well. It did. What else? The other notes I've taken, I wanted to bring over, there's two of them. Particular favourite bit of Kate's personality of mine was her giving relationship advice to the tracksuit bro oh, yeah. and it having a payoff. <laughs> a lot of this stuff was set up and then pay off and it could have just been a one-shot thing go see maroon five or whatever it is. yeah it's like yeah. maroon five and then he turns out he did and he <laughs> back, i'm having a lovely chat at the end great but i'm gonna have to shoot you with an arrow i'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite like the tracksuit bros how they were used because i'm not somebody who likes silly actually Silly turns me off quite quickly, but because they put some effort into their silly, to me it was actually proper traditional farce, which is actually as cleverly crafted as drama. The word farce has changed meaning over time, and this I thought was done pretty cleverly, so I totally enjoyed that. That was actually funny. Their incompetence was used quite well. It's when they captured Clint when he let them, and he's like, yeah. I can still see through the bag. Mm, yeah. They tie them up to the things you sit on on a merry-go-round yeah. as well. They're just being stupid at every given point, which makes you wonder why Fisk associates with them in a way. Well, he doesn't. He employed Eleanor. What Eleanor does with her money and who she employs, I suppose he employed Meyer and she chose to use them, so that's a bit of a weird choice. Yeah, he is in charge of them indirectly, however, but still. Yeah. They're part of his organisation. Presumably they're good at low-level enforcement, though. If you need somebody to go around and just say, where's the protection money, they're really good at that. When they came up against an Avenger, they were just a bit out of their league, that was all. They're good at kneecapping someone with a baseball bat yeah. or something like that. If you've got a toolbox full of tools, you need to know which tool is right for the occasion. Yeah, they were used fairly well, for the most part. And my last one is, I don't normally notice direction and sort of art styles, music and so on. It's not normally something that comes up with me. I'm, I'm happy when we do these podcasts and we can talk about story and plot because I feel like that's where I can contribute better. I think you're better at commenting on the directing than me. But one thing I did notice throughout Hawkeye was the music. I don't know why I noticed it. I don't know if I was just more involved or it was Christmas and I heard the Christmas music because I can't imagine that anything would be considered 
totally out there and special? I mean, I might be insulting the music department here without knowing it, but if I am, then I will say apologies. It's because I don't have the knowledge. But there was uses of the Sugar Plum Fairy in this that I did notice. They play it once, straight, and it really matched the comedy of the moment in episode three. But then they play it again with a threatening twist in episode six. And it just made me think of some of the effort people take in defining their scores that I remember even back as a child when I heard Darth Vader's theme played in different ways. And you get the really threatening Imperial March. And then when Darth Vader's dying, they play it slowly on a harp. Your brain triggers and goes, I remember that. I know that music. It's not a new trick, obviously. It's been done in musical storytelling for centuries. And the reason it's been used for centuries is because it does actually have an impact. And for some reason, I noticed it. So that twist on the Sugar Plum Fairy playing twice stood out for me and, and really added to the moment. There's a few other ones that come in. I wish I could name them properly, but... The one that plays in episode five is the music I know is the Snoopy Christmas music where they're all <laughs> dancing around Schroeder's piano. That's obviously not the music at all. <laughs> so all the way through, I noticed the music is adding to the scene. The Sugar Van Perry is the easiest example I can have without going back. I don't know. Maybe your thing was nothing. I don't know if you noticed it at all. No, I definitely did. I liked the score and they used a lot of festive music weaved in through, I suppose, what you would call the traditional superhero stuff. Mm. It was very good at establishing the time that it was set through the music so yeah you would have a few bars of a christmas song and then you would go into the music you might expect i think it blended all that very well it used the christmas setting very well in general i think it allowed for a lot of really good visuals in terms of just the christmas decorations everywhere and the constant use of the color purple yeah. is obviously important because that's key to the comic that this is based on, the yeah. purple colouring, the colouring of the Hawkeye's costumes, stuff like that. So, yeah, it was very well constructed there. And you talked about Kate's personality. I love how personable she is. I love how abrasive she is without pushing it to being annoying because mm. that's a very thin line that can be walked. And part of it is down to Hayley Steinfeld, I think, delivering the dialogue that in lesser hands could have been, oh, God, she's a pain in the arse, isn't she? Yeah. Because there are scenes where she is annoying she's supposed to be annoying at different points because yeah. she's badgering clint and he's like leave me alone i cannot be bothered but she's being persistent she's being pushy she's sending him text messages and stuff like that I suppose one thing we didn't talk about is lucky the pizza dog deserves a bit of a mention yeah fair enough. yeah i don't have much to say about him he's a dog cool he eats pizza they took six episodes to name him and then they don't give you the point where they decide on his name he just has it but, well, yeah, why make a bigger deal out of that than it needs to be? Yeah. yeah. That's another holdover from the comic as well. Right. Kate saves Lucky's life as well. Guess that was a nice moment. Lucky she was there, yeah. Yeah, lucky she was there, yeah. And then, so, but what's the deal with the dog? He's pizza dog. It's not his name. It's more of a title that he claims with honour. Yeah. And then there was the comedy image of her dragging around this massive dog or this massive dog dragging her around. That was there a couple of times. The physicality of those scenes where she was walking him, he's huge and she isn't. He's more than an Easter egg. He is actually included in the plot, which is nicer. Yeah. We can wrap up with the ending. The ending was really... As you said earlier, charming. Bring yeah. that word in where Kate is welcomed into Clint's family by getting to go for Christmas because her mother has been arrested and she doesn't oh, want yes. to spend Christmas with. So she's welcomed into the family and they burn the Ronin suit, which stood out to me actually because the whole point of it we're earlier in the season was that it didn't burn, even in an apartment that was on fire. In a dedicated 
fire maybe, but not in just incidental. I'm happier with it being a metaphor for putting your past behind you and not worry about the technically accurate podcast that is the particular flammable characteristics of various materials that I don't even know. Yeah, I burned the suit and then you had that metaphor earlier on about Ronan is dead, who killed him, Natasha. Yeah. She did, in a way, because she's the one that snapped Clint out of that rampage yeah. and that was the end of it. Or not the end of it, as it turned out, but the end of it, as far as he thought at that time. It was the end of the living Ronin, but not of his consequences. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then they have that chat about, what would my name be? Hawkshot, Hawk Girl, whatever. <laughs> and then she lists the rattles yeah, none off of these. Yeah, they're all bad. What about, and then the credits roll that answers a question. I always like that touch when they do it. It's, what about them? Apart from when they did it in the awful Fantastic Four movie with Miles Teller in it. What should we call ourselves? I know then Fantastic Four flashes it. Oh, I see. But that was more just another brutal onslaught on the back of another brutal onslaught that the film had given but it worked here it was an understated ending as well because kept expecting because all the other shows have to brazenly set up something that's coming next whereas it doesn't it ends the fact that she's going to call herself Hawkeye is written off as something of a joke in a way but that's the difficulty with the other shows having a forced connection to the MCU placed on them in the last episode. The beauty of this writing is that the MCU connections were built potentially beforehand, but then used all the way throughout. You do actually have your connection to the next show already. You've been given it, but it's in Maya. It's in every episode. It's already there. You don't need to crowbar it at the end in episode six. It's just a cleverer writing strategy. They have connected to the wider MCU, but we don't need to do it now at the end. What we can do at the end is give you a normal story's ending. You get your big emotional payoff, but you're not quite ready to say goodbye to the characters yet. So we give you a gentle epilogue, in which point you feel like, yeah, okay, I'm ready now. I'm ready to go. It's old-fashioned storytelling, but it's a reason that it's old-fashioned storytelling is considered to be good. So you call it a reasonably gentle ending. I would go so far as to say, no, that's your epilogue. It's that way on purpose to make the jarring of the close easier to bear on your hopefully tested emotion set. If your emotions haven't been tested, then we've failed. But hopefully we've pushed you a bit back and forwards and you just need a bit of calm to feel good again. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm just saying I kept expecting them to do the coming up next. And even the post credit scene is just, have a laugh with this musical number that we showed you some of earlier. I made myself watch that. It seems you forcibly brought that up again. I made (laughs) myself watch that and tortured myself because I felt like I had to. They'd earned your attention. (laughs) But you now owe me something because you said you wouldn't bring it back and you did. Well, I only bring it back in the context of there was a couple of rejected post credit scenes that I read about. There was one that was supposed to show the, the guys in the truck getting taken to that owl's nest. Oh, brutal. No. I don't think they would have shown you the owl eating them. Well, no, but even so. But it would have been the owl land and they maybe dry off. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. And another one was apparently to confirm Fisk was alive. Yeah, unnecessary. Yeah, that was the right ending. It's one of those things, we wrote these and maybe even filmed them, but we've decided in the editing process that we don't need them. Oh, sure. Fair enough. And Maya's arc completes over the course of the show, so it's not that she practically turns to the camera and says, stay tuned for my own TV show. (laughs) Because if you don't want to watch that, then you get everything that you need from her in this show. Yeah based on what they set up. So the gentle ending of, he did make it home for Christmas and they're having a laugh about code names. Yeah. You might see Kate Bishop in the future. Definitely yeah. will. But the show isn't 
telling you what her next adventure is going to be already or hinting at what her next adventure is going to be already. Mm. What she did here is wrapped up. Everything is wrapped up. Conveniently for Christmas, everything is wrapped up. Good grief, you have to get a pun in somewhere. (laughs) We almost made it, by the way. I think that one's deserved, considering the setting and so on. I'll let you off, it's Christmas. There's a late Christmas present. A couple weeks after Christmas, but we're there. Yeah, great show. Absolutely a great show. So did you get everything in from your notes that you wanted to? Yep, well, there's just those last three, yep. Cool, okay. So as is customary, why don't you give our brief final wrap-up thought about Hawkeye as a TV show? I think arguably the best of the Disney shows. Either way, my personal favourite, and I enjoyed it more than some of the films. I've really enjoyed seeing the chemistry between... Haley and Jeremy, I think they gave us the perfect Kate and Clint. It was mentor and student. It was a buddy TV show. They are wonderful to see together, and both of them had a really meaningful development. I was actually moved by this show in a way I wanted to be moved by other TV shows, but never quite was by any of them. It gave you everything you needed out of a Christmas show as well. So that, along with the layering of bringing and developing a plot, constantly referring back to what you're building from episode one, two, three, four, five, and six, meant that I think it was well structured, well delivered. And that's why I think there's definitely a good argument for it being the best of the shows. But yeah, who cares? Even if it wasn't, still my favourite by a country mile. Yeah, this was my favourite of the current crop of Disney plus Marvel stuff. Again, I want to stress that that doesn't devalue my thoughts on the other ones. I just think this one was the most consistent. It delivered on what it promised. It said in episode one, here's what we're doing. And in episode six, it was, here's what we're still doing. And it wrapped it all up. Character stuff was great had some excellent action in it. It had some great twists among what it was playing with. Brought back Wilson Fisk. Great to see Fisk back. Even though it was not a surprise at all because, again, the hinting and the rumour mill always ruins these things for you when you just find out that it's a likely thing. But Mm. at least his return made sense. I think that was great. So, yeah, fantastic show. Absolutely loved it. And I do want to see more from both Hawkeyes in the future. I want to see Jeremy Renner come back and do stuff. Definitely want to see Haley Steinfeld come back and do stuff. It's unclear if Renner will return. Based on his character, I think he'd be content to just never leave the farm ever again. But if Jeremy Renner wants to do more in Disney and Marvel want him to make more, then that'll happen. So who knows from here? But excellent show. Definitely loved every minute of it. Absolutely adored it. Yeah, so that's that. So there was our discussion about Hawkeye Season 1, potentially only season, but certainly Season 1. Aaron, thank you for joining in this long-form discussion of this latest entry into the MCU. Well, maybe not even latest entry, of this entry into the MCU. Charles. I want to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, then please do hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. I won't ask the question that you hate. I will just say, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a comment. We would prefer five stars, but we'll take what we can get. So do that. And if you want to join us in talking about Hawkeye, the MCU, or anything else, you can catch us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. But otherwise, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Yeah.